0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt
2: Townsend Show.
1: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
3: BYU Radio.
2: Welcome back, friends. Hour number two of the program. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your life coach or guide on the side. We do what we can on this program to give you a leg up in life. You know, most of us were not born with an, an owner's manual. We have to figure it out as we go. Today, we're going to be talking about marriages and uh, how you take... I mean, every marriage is going to have imperfection, right? Major problems at times. Some minor problems. Even Donald Trump's might have a problem here and there.
0: But isn't it part of being... uh Kind of a, 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 a evolved person as you grow in the marriage you just learn. to overlook you your partner's problems and, and yes. shortcomings and issues.
2: Yes. And even, even though more you may not have any. That's right. right. You don't, but they do. And right. you it would be better that you overlook those. Half the marriage is perfect. The other half is still working on it. It's <laughs> fine. We don't really fight. Yeah. See, in my world, that's not always a good thing. Really? Yeah. Not, what if things are just great? Or they're just peachy. No, that's great. That's great. But see, so generally, some of the research shows health, Really healthy couples have conflict. There's things see, you should Matt, you should have differences. Matt is a marriage consultant. Yeah. Coach. If there isn't a
0: problem, then he doesn't really have a job. So
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the the difference is that so unless oh, you married your twin, there should be some differences in just even desires. Okay. All interests. right. Here's an example. Yeah.
3: I like to put down a cup where in, in a particular place so that it's known to me that I'm not done with this. You, you assume that it's known to everybody this else. Is, yeah. I'm not done with this cup. You're still working I left, the cup. I left, it, I left it here for a very specific reason. I'm not being lazy. Yeah. And it's always gone when I go back for it again. Yes. It's always in the sink or put in the cupboard. It's like been put away.
2: She, and does, she, does your wife just think, man, why doesn't he ever just put his cup away? Probably, yeah. You know what I like to do? That's when I just hook the cup to my hip. I just have a little carabiner, and I just clip it to my hip and carry my cup with me.
3: But sometimes it's – I'll i will put it down, go across the room, turn around, and it's already gone. She's wow. fast. She is
2: fast. My wife will actually make the bed while I'm still in it. Maybe she's trying to tell you something. Oh, I think she is. It's like 3 in the afternoon. Time to get out of bed. <laughs> I think she's trying to. So we're going to talk today about how – to handle these imperfect marriages, and maybe blow up the myth that marriage should be perfect. So, marriage consultant would be improper of a way to describe what you do. Well, yeah, consulting is a weird word. Like, I'm more like a married. I'd say a coach. Okay. Yeah, not Con- a consultant. Well, a consultant is something like it seems like you do with people. I'm not a wedding planner. I, I don't. I don't. I'm not. I don't plan the weddings. I'm not a. I'm not a marriage consultant. I'm a. I'm a relationship coach.
0: Okay. Well, I just wanted to clarify. You seem a little – It just seems like that. Like I a hit a raw nerve somehow. Well, it's just a
2: weird word. It's like, yeah. it's like you're not a producer. Right. You're a showmaker. Yeah, I am. Should we make you – I make show. <laughs> a showman. I'm a
4: showmaker. <laughs> that's well,
2: joke. that's how
0: I have to – like people ask me what I do and I have to kind of to- break it down to more simplistic pieces. So they're like, oh, okay, that's what you do. Because you say you're a producer and they're like, what?
3: Or in
2: German, Schumacher.
0: Yeah, see? It's all confusing when you get away from English.
2: It really is. By the way, um, I forgot to tell you guys. Happy World Emoji Day
5: if you texting smiley you're wrong, face and the words you use are wrong listen closely to this song emoji sing along instagram has gotten old
2: what did we used to do before we had emojis text words talk to each other that oh, seems hard but now you can get so much done with just one you know thumbs up yeah, my wife's been doing that more often. I like the thumbs up emoji. But how lot. do you know it's not a sarcastic thumbs up? Well, that would be, that would be a different digit. Hmm. There's a lot of – now you can have like high fives, I think, mm-hmm. hang loose. You can do all these different things with emojis that you, you used to never be able to do. And the smiley faces I like, but they confuse me. There's too many of them. And I don't know what every little squinting eye, smiley, blush – I don't know what they all mean. So I get a little confused on the smileys. But then the weird thing about emojis, too, is not only do you – you have to choose your skin tone, your skin color of tone. So – and sometimes I'm like, I feel like I'm tanner than just – I mean I'm darker skinned than just white. Like porcelain white. Yeah, yeah. But then I don't want to like pretend like I'm darker than I am or lighter than I am. It just creates a lot of pressure on
3: you. Do you have a favorite emoji? I don't use them. Um – I have a favorite emoji, but I don't talk about it on the air. I know exactly what you're talking about. Do you? You don't even need an emoji to express. It's the flag of Australia.
2: It's actually, (laughs) it's the the woman in the red dress dancing some tango or something. No,
3: it's, I'm sure it's the one that Patrick Stewart is going to be playing in the new emoji movie. I don't
2: even know what that one is. Terry knows exactly what it is. I don't know what that is, but um, okay. I yeah, that my favorite one is the dancing, is the dan- the, the Spanish dancer later. dancing lady. See, but then okay. again,
3: how do you know she's Spanish? Yeah, I don't know.
2: It's cultural appropriation. Totally, totally. What are you is. doing? Uh, so we'll be talking world emojis all day today as well, plus some crazy headlines. A kindergartner evacu- uh, kindergarten was evacuated after a child brings a bomb to class, a World War II oh. unexploded bomb yeah. to class. Look what I found. Yeah, show and tell. Yeah. Hit the ground. <laughs> it's going <laughs> to blow. Also, a little girl took her hamster to the vet because it hadn't moved for days. We'll talk about that as well. Oh, yeah kind of a difficult day for little girls but first let's get to uh let's get to the headlines with terry south what's going on terry in the tonto national forest north of phoenix
0: nine people were killed when a flash flood on saturday over over afternoon swept through a swimming hole where a family was having a gathering Officials said the flash flood hit the cold spring swimming hole around 3 19 in the afternoon 14 people washed away a search and rescue team was able to rescue four people on saturday sunday they recovered bodies of two more victims police say they are still searching for one more missing person a 27 year old man the local fire department said there have been several forest fires recently in the area and that it is likely uh, why so much debris washed down into the swimming hole normally it's just a trickle of water coming down the creek but uh, during the monsoon season it can go from a foot deep to 10 feet deep in a matter of minutes it's a tough wow. weekend there. Oh, Facebook is fighting a court order that blocks a social media giant from letting users know when law enforcement investigators ask to search their online information, particularly their political affiliations and comments. Major technology companies and civil liberty groups have joined Facebook in the case, which resembles legal challenges throughout the country from technology companies that... Uh, oppose how the government seeks access to Internet data in emails or social media accounts during criminal investigations, the the side of the Washington Post. Facebook is arguing in the D.C. Court of Appeals that the order violates First Amendment protections of the company and individuals. Wow. So we'll see where that fight goes because, you know. Yeah. They want to get in there because there's, you know, terrorism and ISIS and troublemakers, but at the same time, you know, there's your mom's pictures. (laughs) So what do you want to do?
1: What do you do? When a
0: wildfire quickly approached their house in Orovo, California earlier this month, the Orsolo family had just a few minutes to grab some valuables and escape to safety. Mark Orsolo, 34, had been collecting movies for years, and his sister, Danielle, grabbed trash bags and started throwing in as many DVDs as she could. She was only able to save about 20 of more than the 300 movies when Orsolo, who has Down syndrome, found out the fire destroyed his collection he was
2: distraught. Aww, sad.
0: So was usually so happy all the time. I felt bad I didn't grab more, his sister said. Uh, then they asked uh, friends and family if they'd be interested in sending him a few movies if they have yeah, some extra ones cool. around. He ended up with, uh, in a few days, he had over 400 DVDs back <laughs> in his collection, so he had more. And then uh, strangers have also rallied to help their parents, bringing him more than $10,000 to help them rebuild their house.
2: Oh, my head, That's cool. Kind of That's appalled. great.
0: It is a, you know, the story goes. Grab as many movies as she can, and she grabbed 20.
2: Yeah.
3: Which ones did she grab, I know. Though? Was
0: she being selective? Was she like, we going to need this one? Uh, we don't Maybe need that one. Maybe she just, like,
3: did A through D. I don't know, but, you know, their DVDs just grab stacks and go. I yeah. This though. is the type of question you'd hear in college. If your house is burning down, which movies would you take <laughs> with you? Which would you save? That's a good idea. So, kind of a good outcome there. Cool. Finally, a mall in Shanghai,
0: China, has made the baffling decision to introduce husband storage facilities glass pods where women can drop off their husbands while they go shopping there are a number of questions raised by these pods mainly if men hate shopping with their wives so much why can't they just go to one of the other stores in the shopping mall right right there's all kinds of things there's going other on in the stores a mall. there they're not just all, you know, for the, the wives, I guess. Yeah. The Global Harbor Mall, w- which these uh, glass cylinders were installed and which contains 270,000 square foot of floor space, has plenty of other stores they could go to. There are even non-shopping alternatives like admiring all the fresco decorations or sitting on a bench by the food court and contemplating life. That's what people Uh, do in the mall,
1: right? That's what I do. I
0: think basically malls are just horrible. Uh, When do men – so it goes on and says, on the bright side, for the husbands, at least each individual pod at the mall contains a computer monitor and a game pad so they can play retro video games to their heart's content. According to a Chinese newspaper, the games are currently free. But in a few months, they'll be required to scan a QR code or use their phones and pay a small fee. So, they can actually use these pods. So, the fun will be over soon. So, if you need to you want to try these out, Matt, you need to get to Shanghai. Man, I got to hurry. Also, the pods currently ha- don't have ventilation or AC. Ugh. So, many people are drenched in sweat after five minutes of gaming, which really kind of eliminates the uh, comfort factor. This isn't the first time China has explored using the concept of husband storage in malls or husband cloak rooms. They've been springing up around the country since
2: 2010. Boy, sure. Hmm. It, it, it makes husbands sound like they. They're like kind of brainless, they can't, yeah. boring. You, you sit here, I'll be right back, You honey. sit here, I'm going to put you in this locker. Sure, you'll sweat, but mommy will be back. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. So I don't know. He could just go and
0: do something else. or if I mean, I mean, there is the dread of watching your wife try on like 20 dresses. Yeah, but is that a dread or is it like, whoa, yeah, there's another one. You.
1: Uh, yeah. There's
0: another one. You could just go somewhere else in the mall, yeah. Yeah. Go for a walk. Yeah, or you could just learn to be pleasant doing la- la- something you don't time, love Last time we doing. went to the mall, they had those little
3: trains that drove around the, uh-huh. uh, the
0: aisles. I mean, I guess they're for kids, but you could just jump on there. What do they do? Kick you off?
3: That's right. Hey, so Terry and I have been vulnerable here this morning.
2: Have you? Yeah, if we've shared.
3: Well, he shared about his wife's dresses. I shared about the frustration of leaving a cup and not having it stay in that place. Yeah. What's yours? What's your pet peeve or your frustration your vulnerability mm. oh,
2: I, I think i shared that my wife tucks or uh, makes the bed around oh me every that's night. true that's true you did but i i don't have any pet peeves against my wife but you will air publicly but i will air publicly gotcha. i mean uh the court documents speak for themselves <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, the 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 filings um, from my lawsuit with my wife, those all speak for themselves. Wow. No, honestly, I think marriage is – part of it is sometimes you just need to go to the mall with your wife mm. when you don't want to. That's right. And watch her put on dresses. And Who like goes it. to the mall? Yeah, I haven't been to a mall forever though. I
0: usually go to the store that's in the parking lot of the mall
3: now. Yeah. Those are the places
0: we end The up, outer so. mall. I'll go to that. the
3: food court in the mall. Mm.
2: By the way, I had a great churro the other day. From? Uh, Churro Express. It was just where I, I gave a speech. I was giving a speech, and it was just at the ski resort where I was.
3: Is it from there. Chim Chimney Churro. Mm. Chim Chim. Speaking
2: of Chim Chimini Churro, got a great story. Yeah. I got to bring this up about a hamster. So, do you guys? Did you guys have a pet growing up? I had a bunny. I had a. Um, <laughs> what in the <laughs> world? <laughs> Holy cow. Somebody just brought a bear, a Stuffed little bear cub. Near the studio. That's, like that's, a taxidermied bear cub. Yeah, huh. Right up to the window. That about freaked me out. Distractions. Um, I had a dog. I Ham- had a hermit dance. crab. I love this song. Go ahead. It's Hamster
0: Dance. So check this
2: out. Little this girl, hamster was not dancing. Used to move no, my email this,
0: notification on my computer.
2: <laughs> this little girl in Northampton, England, worried that her pet hamster got a shock when uh, uh, she was taken to the pet vet. Uh, the rodent apparently hadn't been moving for three days not uh, normal not that's, normal that's it just sat at the edge of her cage wouldn't eat or drink anything so the little girl who was so attentive noticed that something's not right with her hamster took her to the vet and uh when they they put it out for the vet um the vet didn't move for the vet either and then anyway the vet took a closer look at the hamster and then said did anything else happen she said well the the hamster had run underneath a refrigerator and apparently when it had been underneath the refrigerator, it had found a magnet, just a little magnet that goes, you know, and it apparently ate the magnet. And then the magnet made the gerbil stick to the metal cage. <laughs> to the bottom of the cage. That's awesome. <laughs> they noticed there was something in the cheek pouch of the cute little gerbil, and it was a fridge magnet. <laughs> so once you take the, the magnet out of the gerbil's mouth, it could now move and eat. So its face was stuck to the bottom of the cage. Can you imagine what would be worse than being a gerbil stuck to the, a cage? Well, do we have Netflix? In no this? Netflix. Mm, you that couldn't would be eat, tough. you couldn't drink, hmm. and you
0: couldn't speak to your little friend. You, you have that hamster wheel, and it's just sitting yeah. there. You can't use it. It's torture
2: <laughs> enough. Poor, wow. poor little gerbil. Well, all, all ended well, though. Yeah, I mean, nobody died. Then he started dancing. And then this is now audio from the gerbil singing the gerbil song and apparently playing the keyboard. Boy, that gerbil can rip that keyboard. Good stuff. See, life is good once you remove the magnet that keeps you stuck. When we come back, we'll be talking with Jill Savage. No more perfect marriages. How to manage the imperfection in your marriage. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You know, marriage is hard and requires constant care and attention, and sometimes we'll still falter and struggle even if we do everything right. In her, uh, in, in the recent book, No More Perfect Marriages Experience the Freedom of Being Real Together. Our next guest, Jill Savage, is, by the way, a returning guest. She and her husband wrote the book together, and they tackle some hard questions and give some great advice on how to make our marriages stronger, a little easier, and, boy, even just if they could teach us how to be more real together, that alone would be worth it. Jill, thank you again for being with us today.
6: Yes, I'm glad to ha- uh, have the opportunity to chat with you.
2: This is an interesting uh, a topic because it does seem like, in some regard, even though this is our soulmate, our life partner, our, our lover, whatever we want to call it, a lot of us just, we're not very real with each other.
6: No, we aren't. And much of that comes from our own upbringing. And we don't, you know, necessarily realize it. We don't uh, recognize that we keep our, our hearts guarded with each other. And when we do that, what we do is we actually kind of separate our heart from our spouse. And we do that 1 centimeter at a time. Uh. So you don't really notice it.
2: Yeah, it kind but of sne- when, we sneak it out there, don't we?
6: We do. And then 1 centimeter becomes 2 and you still don't notice it and 3 and eh, still not a big deal, but when centimeters become inches, and inches become feet, and feet become yards and yards become miles, that's where people get to the place to go, and they, you know, even utter the words, I don't love you anymore, I don't uh, I don't want this marriage to continue, and it's because they have allowed what we call the slow fades to begin to invade their marriage, mm. and um, they've stopped being real with each other. And so really what Mark and I wanted to do with this book was help couples begin to identify the slow fades in their in their marriage, and we all have them, we're all dealing with them, and to put a label on them, to understand them, to know they exist, but then also uh, to provide what we call the eight God tools that turn those fades around.
2: Is Is some of this the fact that we just have an expectation that marriages are going to be, I guess the word we use a lot is perfect, and it, it, how, how, so how many of our problems are actually caused simply because we expect perfection?
6: Exactly. In fact, that's um, slow fade number one, and that is unrealistic expectations. And, so, and, we, and most of us would say, I don't expect perfection. We would say, oh, I don't expect myself to be perfect. I don't expect myself to be perfect. I don't expect marriage to be perfect, but when imperfect shows up, we usually don't handle it well.
2: <laughs> so true. We so don't that's expect that's it, but we do. Yeah,
6: yeah. That's our first clue that actually we are dealing with what we call the perfection infection, and it is pulling our hearts away from each other.
1: Mm.
2: And is it? I mean, I guess that's that's correctable, right? It's just how do you it take is. a how do you take kind of a perfectionistic view of it and And I guess, normalize it to just allow it to be what it is
6: Well, I think that the first thing we have to think about is where did my um, where did my images of perfection come in my marriage where What has set me up for unrealistic expectations? So I'll give you some examples from our own experience. My husband was raised in a, a very abusive home. Um, there was physical abuse, verbal abuse. Um, there was uh, sexual abuse. There was every kind of abuse, and um, and so he saw nothing but rage and anger and conflict. And so what he said is, when I get married, my marriage is not going to look like that. Hmm. And and you know, which is an honorable desire. But the truth is, he didn't know what a healthy marriage looked like. So he set up in his mind a fantasy a fantasy that was exactly the opposite of what he had grown up in, but it went so far over on the spectrum that it fell into perfectionism. Mm. So there's a perfect example of how somebody can, um, you know, put the perfection infection in for a good reason, but not realize they went too far. Yeah. Now I grew up in a wonderful home. Um, my parents have been married for 56 years. They are um, uh, it was a beautiful family full of love. Um, my parents took us to church, so faith was a part of our family from you know, day one for me. Um, but I never saw my parents disagree. I, I never saw my parents have conflict. And so what did I do? Without realizing it, I came into marriage with the expectation that there wouldn't be conflict, J- just because I'd never seen it before. Yeah. And so then suddenly, marriage is not looking the way i thought it would look marriage is not looking the way my husband thought it would look and we're becoming discontent with our very real marriage mm. so so see both of those are examples from our home of origin but then you add in the media the movies we watch the television shows we watch i mean we watch a movie and they solve big life issues big marriage issues in 2 hours or less right you know so without realizing it we begin to just be infected with these unrealistic expectations of ourselves, our spouse, and of marriage. So the first step is to to correcting it is to actually begin to think about where did that come from for me?
1: Mm.
6: Where have I uh, gotten this idea Mm. that is causing me to be discontent in my very real marriage? And then the second thing we do is we begin to use um, our our God tools uh, to turn those around. And um, as we, you know, look at each fade, and we talk about in No More Perfect Marriages the seven slow fades. So we've got the slow fade of unrealistic expectations. We have the slow fade of minimizing, of not accepting, slow fade of disagreement, of defensiveness, of naivety, and of avoiding emotion. And then as we begin to deal with those slow fades, we identify them and we say, all right, what do I need? What tool do I need to begin to turn this state around? And um, in every marriage needs to have a toolbox of tools that help them with the everyday challenges of marriage.
2: Mm, That's great. That's
6: where we turn it around.
2: Yeah. Is it uh, maybe help us understand um, what? If perfect isn't what it's supposed to look like, maybe let us understand or help us understand what normal is like, because I think that's it is we all have a, a great expectation of what it would be like if the prince came in and the kiss lasted ever after. But what does every other marriage look like and what's normal?
6: Yeah, that's a great question. And it just so happens that I live in normal Illinois, by the way. Oh, do you really? So.
2: How great is that? <laughs> so perfect. Tell us what normal looks like in normal.
6: Uh, so normal looks like um, conflict happens. It does. It has to. Yeah. And here's why. You are two very different people with di- very different views in this world. Uh, you see the world through different angles. And quite frankly, your, nar- your marriage needs both of those angles both of those perfect uh, perspectives so conflict is normal and it will happen it is actually growth trying to happen in our marriage Hmm. but what happens is we either um, react to conflict in a way that shuts our spouse down or shuts the conflict down because we try to control um, and then we don't make any progress when we do that or we try to sweep conflict under the rug and pretend we have no conflict. And and then, again, we're not able to grow through the conflict. So we need to recognize that conflict is normal. Um, a second thing that is normal is for feelings to come and go. It is normal for those feelings to come and go. Sometimes you will feel very in love with your spouse. Uh, You will just be filled with the tinglys, you know, and you'll see your, your husband or your wife and they're doing something. And all of a sudden your heart just warms up and you're just like, oh, I love that side of him. I love that side of her. But then there are days where you're just like, I I don't like them. I don't really like them. And uh, it just seems like you're, you're hitting each other. You're bumping into each other's differences. And uh, and so those feelings, those warm, fuzzy feelings go away, and that is normal. We need to recognize that it is normal. Now, if it is feeling, you know, that way more often and uh, always, you're always feeling, you know, that, that that love has gone away, then that's when you get to use the God tool of, of love and you get to choose love because you're not going to feel love. Yeah, And it may even be a red flag that tells you, hey, maybe we need a little bit of help. Maybe it's time to, um, you know, seek out some help to help get over these bumps that we seem to, to constantly be running into. Um, but it is normal for feelings to go up and down.
2: Yeah, and I guess and, that's the key. I mean, and what you start to notice, too, it seems like is... The, the feelings going up and down um, can also—it they can it can happen just naturally without you doing much, but you can also reverse them and make them go up and down by being more proactive and, and doing things like loving each other.
6: Exactly. And most of us think that—you know, just talking here about the God tool of love—most of us think of love as a feeling. But the truth is love is a choice. And, uh, you know, we really have to recognize that, uh, you know, there are many days I'm sure God chooses to love us, um, because we're not real lovable in the moment. Um, and so he chooses to love us. And so a lot of times with our spouse, we have to choose to love and it is not easy. And one of the things we talk about in the book is we went through a very, very difficult crisis in our marriage six years ago, and um, and um it was, uh, my husband became a very disillusioned with life, disillusioned with marriage, disillusioned with the Church, disillusioned with his faith. I mean, he was just very lost, and we look back on that and now know that that really was kind of a full-on midlife crisis. Mm. And I'm going to tell you, God taught me how to love during that season. Um, in a deeper way than I ever experienced because up until that point love had been a ping-pong game between my husband and I he would love me I would love him back he would love me I would love him back but during that season he didn't even love himself and so um, he certainly wasn't loving me or anyone else at that point in time and so I just really uh, I remember in the midst of that um, Uh, It was a very, very scary season, and I remember asking God, what do I do? What do I do? And I heard God whisper, I want you to love him. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. Hold it.
2: He's not even being nice. (laughs) Right, yeah.
6: Exactly. He doesn't
2: deserve love.
6: Uh Mm Uh-huh. And um, what I heard God kind of whisper back was, you know what, Jill, sometimes, you know, I remember I said, God, he's not real lovable right now. And God whispered back, Jill, sometimes you're not either.
1: Oh, that's great.
6: okay. And I said, all right, Lord, you love me when I'm unlovable. Would you please show me how to love my husband while he's being unlovable? And I'm telling you, that was some growth, some huge growth on my part. Not easy, but I will say it was very powerful for me to experience that, and it was also very powerful for my husband to experience that.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's great. Boy, you know, and, and we need it, don't we? Because it... Once we think love has to always be reciprocal, then the minute it's not, we just think it's time to be done. But at we some do. point, yeah, you gotta you got to give love no matter what because you're a loving person.
6: Right. And culturally, I think our culture, um, I think that's what we – also messages that we see in the media. We see in celebrities' lives, you know, the people that are like always paraded in front of us. Um, we don't see them choosing love. Um, We see them saying, oh, well, we fell out of love or, you know, making statements like that. And without realizing it, we become affected by those messages. So we have to keep um, God's way in front of us, which often isn't the popular way, but it is the way that helps us to go the distance in our very real, messy Marriages
2: That's so true so true. We're speaking with Jill Savage. Uh, you can find out more information at her website jillsavage.org and we're talking about her book No More Perfect Marriages. Um, interesting insight into uh, marriage and really how to how to find and, and create the freedom of being real together. It's, it's powerful stuff, and again, invoking uh, the power of, of God as part of that. We'll be back, folks, continuing the journey as we understand more about marriages. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. Uh, today we're talking about the book "No More Perfect Marriages: Experience the Freedom of Being Real Together." It's written by uh, Mark and Jill Savage. Joining us on the phone right now is Jill Savage. Uh, she's been on the show before with other books uh, that she has um, that uh, she's written, and today she's she's helping us understand that maybe the illusion of perfection is really more of an infection uh, to our relationships. Jill, thank you again for being with us today.
6: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: And again, we come by that illusion of a perfect marriage. It, it, we might come by it quite naturally, but it does set us up, it seems like, to to almost um, be less happy in our marriage than we would be if we just accepted that it's not going to be perfect.
6: Right. It breeds discontentment, and um, that's a dangerous place. When you become discontent in your marriage... That is where your heart is pulled a- apart from each other, and distance grows. Mm. And so anytime there's distance, what we want to do is we want to close that distance. We want to identify what it is, what's causing it, and then close that distance. And it is um, not always easy, but a- and oftentimes it requires us to step out in courage. In fact, that's one of the God tools of, um, that we talk about is the God tool of courage, and um, and let me share with you, you know, some examples of, of yeah. how we use that courage. So um, I'll, I'll share from both my husband's perspective and my own. My husband was, as I shared earlier, was raised in a very abusive home environment, in kind of an environment of children are to be seen and not heard. And so he learned early on he didn't have a voice and he couldn't use his voice. And if he did use his voice, he got in he got in big trouble. And so he became an adult that didn't believe he had anything valuable to add to the mix. So in our marriage, he became very passive. Um, you know, he was quick to say, oh, it doesn't matter to me or whatever you want. or. But the truth was, he did have a voice. Mm. And way deep inside it, even when he would say, oh, it doesn't matter to me, it really did matter to him. And he, he now says it, it, that he said, or that he was, thought that he was just letting things slide. I'm just letting it slide. It's no big deal. But what he now realizes is he was letting things pool. Mm. And as those things were pooling in his heart, he was growing more and more discontent in our marriage because he was uh, acquiescing his place in our relationship. And um, so he really, as he learned that and became more aware of it, he's had to learn, use his God tool of courage to speak up to find his voice and um and and to really um express what he thinks and what he feels. Mm. And so and honestly he didn't even know what he felt because it, he was told for so long his feelings didn't matter. He needed to, you know, he just needed to do whatever orders were barked at him. And so he really had to become use his courage Uh, To become more in touch with that and then put them out on the table in our relationship.
2: That's powerful. I could even see how you could combine two of the tools, the God tools you've been talking about, of love and courage. So he had to be courageous enough to say what he needed uh, to say, but say it in a way that was still kind and loving.
6: Yes, exactly, exactly. And so for me, I had to learn to use my God tool of courage in actually a pretty different way, and that was. Um, uh, while I was raised in a wonderful home environment with wonderful parents and wonderful family, we didn't do we didn't do feelings. We really uh, we were just kind of that, the strong family in the community, and um, if if life got hard, we just bucked up and pushed through it and moved on. Mm. And, um, and so that made me um, emotionally strong, I guess you could say, but it also made me emotionally not vulnerable. And so my strength was sending a message to my husband that I did not need him, and I didn't mean to send that message to him. But I, you know, if life got hard um, and, and maybe I, I felt like I wanted to cry, I would go to my bedroom and I would cry alone because that's what I did all those years growing up. I yeah. cried alone. And so I would do that. But what I didn't realize is um, I, was, I was saying to my husband, I don't need you. I'm okay. Um, I, let me just go over here and take care of myself. And um, he longed for me to be vulnerable with him. He longed to comfort me and to encourage me in those hard times, and those hard seasons of life. So um, I I can remember the day it turned around for me. This was um, shortly after that very, very hard season. Uh, During that hard season, my husband actually left for a season of time. He was Mm. gone for four months. Um, He was unfaithful. That was um, something we never, ever thought we would deal with. But eventually, God got a hold of his heart. He came back home a completely different person. And we began 18 months of counseling to put our marriage back together. Mm. And that's when God really taught me so much about love and how to love him. But. God was also teaching me about myself, and I knew there were places I needed to grow. And so um, I, and when I was walking through that, I was also had a friend who was walking through a similar situation. But unfortunately, her marriage, her husband didn't return home. And uh, I got a message from her, a text, and uh, it, it was the text that said, hey, It looks like things aren't turning around and he's filed papers and, you know, she was just heartbroken and therefore I was heartbroken. And I thought to myself, oh, I just need to cry. And I started up the stairs to my bedroom and I caught myself halfway and I thought, no, no, I have to do this differently in the second half of my marriage than I did in the first. My husband was sitting in the other room, so I went back down the stairs and I walked into the living room and I held out my phone and showed him the text. And I burst into tears, crawled into his lap, and cried my eyes out. Hmm. The first time that had ever happened in 30 years of marriage. And that was a powerful moment for both of us, but it required my God tool of courage to do something very different than what I'd ever done before and to be emotionally vulnerable with my husband.
2: Yeah. Boy, a powerful, and then and he held you. I mean, he didn't. He did. He just he just had to he had to be safe in that space too, and and do his part. When it might he be sure easier did. for him to run. I mean, that's what the, the, we always create these systems where you you run and uh, he doesn't voice, and then all of a sudden you get together and you stay, and he holds you, and he maybe can learn to voice. It's powerful.
6: Exactly, it was very powerful for both of us, but also very scary. Because, um, you know, one of the things we say is you've got to push through awkward to get to a new normal. Mm. And uh, I'm telling you, that was awkward for me. Totally. Um, It it felt awkward for him, and yet at the same time, he also loved it because he had longed for that kind of, of, of emotional vulnerability in our relationship. But I just didn't know how to get there, and quite frankly, he didn't either. So one of us had to take that first step, and it was scary. But we pushed through awkward, and now we do have and, – and honestly, the next time it happened, it was still awkward. Yeah. And even the third time. But I will say now that we are four years down the road, five years, six years down the road, it's not awkward anymore. It's our new normal.
2: That's pretty neat. And it's um, – what's amazing too, though, is you guys were informed, you were religious, you were doing a lot of things right, and you yeah. still have problems. I mean, that's the point of your book, isn't it, that – even being pretty normal, problems happen.
6: It is. And, and the thing is, we were doing the big things. Uh, we were taking date nights. Uh, we were going away for our anniversary every year. Uh, we were speaking each other's love languages mm. and, and really practicing that. So we were doing the big things. But what we weren't doing is we weren't tending to the little things. The things that were separating our hearts one centimeter at a time, the things that were simmering under the surface that we were just kind of sweeping aside or pretending they weren't there, we weren't dealing with those. And that's where uh, we began to experience erosion in our marriage. And so what we had to do is we had to start tending to the little things, things that in the past we had let slide. Now we were saying no. I'm not going to let that slide. I'm actually going to deal with that. Um, we're going to be, to, um, to be assertive in our relationship. Assertive is a positive word. We're not talking aggressive. Yeah. Assertive. I'm, ta- I'm going to share the, what I'm feeling. I'm going to share what I'm struggling with. And, um, and that was new ground for us, um, but very, very, very important to do.
2: Do you um I, I always have clients that say, well, yeah, Jill, but uh you don't know my husband. <laughs> and um so so they kind of dismiss certain changes. How do you how what's the best way you've ever found to um to like rebuild trust, to to get that negative interpretation of your partner out of your head and and, and forgive? You you have a perfect example of mm-hmm. needing to forgive and and move on, but you had to rethink how you saw your partner. I'm assuming.
6: Absolutely, you really do, and um, you know, rebuilding trust is a two way street. Um, it it really is. Uh, I, you know, it was very scary because I had to risk again. I had to risk trusting him again. I had to risk loving him again after that terrible breach of tru- of, of mistrust and, and betrayal. But he also um, he played a big role in that. In that uh, he opened his life up. I mean, he he took the password off of his phone. He uh, gave me his computer passwords, and he said, "You know what? I, I'm an open book now." Um, and truly, he experienced a um, a surrendering hmm. in his faith that I had never seen before. Um, Mark always used to call himself, um, he was kind of a hard disciple, um, in that he just argued with God all the time. I don't understand this. It ticks me off, you know, which is fine for us to do that, but it also kept him from fully surrendering and trusting God. And so the man who came home after that year of, of midlife crisis really was a different man, a very surrendered man. And that helped me to be able to begin to uh, take baby steps in trusting him. Um, and, and because he was very surrendered, he wasn't defensive anymore. So that really helped. Um, in fact, he would say, you know, if I would say, okay, I'm struggling here. You're going to be gone overnight, and I'm struggling here. And, you know, he never once uh, got angry with me and said, hey, you know, look, I've been home for three months. You just need to get over this. Instead, he would say, I'm, I'm sure that this is hard. Hmm. And he was very validating. Um, what can we do that that can reassure you? Uh, what can we do to increase accountability? And then, and then he would humorously say, "And Jill, that was the old man. Um, you know, he's he's buried out back. Uh, yeah. This is the new man." And uh, we'd laugh about that. But so we helped each other. Um, I spoke my concerns. He reassured my concerns. Um, But I'll tell you, you know, let's talk about forgiveness for a moment, because that is a God tool. We think that forgiveness is once and done. I want you to know that forgiveness is a daily, hour-by-hour, sometimes minute-by-minute choice. And um, if you're married, you probably need to be using your God tool of forgiveness about 20 times a day. Right, exactly. See, I think we think that forgiveness is for big infractions of mistrust. No, it's for the little things. It's when your spouse says that he'll run an errand and he forgets to do it. It's when she says that uh, she'll make a phone call for you, uh, and 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 she forgets to do it. It's for those human, those times where our humanness gets in the way, and um, and so we have to have that God tool of forgiveness that allows us to for, to to forgive and and deal with those places where we bump into each other's. Um, mistakes and imperfections. Mm. Um, And even with the infidelity, um, of course, I I had to make a decision to forgive. And let me tell you, forgiveness is a choice. Yeah, totally. Not going to feel like forgiving. But I also had to forgive lots of different facets of that. So when I would be, um, let's just say in the months afterwards, when I would be balancing the checkbook and things would be financially tight, because of how much money he used in his separation and his decision to uh, pursue this other relationship and separate. Okay, i got to forgive in that moment. I'm sitting there with a checkbook in my hand, and I'm dealing with the consequences of my husband's poor choices. And that is a moment where I have to choose to forgive.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. And boy, the power of being able to make that choice. It all can be found in the book by Jill Savage and Mark Savage, No Perfect Marriages, Experience the Freedom of Being Real Together. You can find out more information at jillsavage.org. Jill, thank you so much for your time, for being with us, and for uh, giving us a a lift in how we can make our marriages better. We'll take a break. We'll be back wrapping up uh, this hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. So do you remember kindergarten and those great uh, days where you'd bring your show and tell? Well, what you know, I love those days because then if you got a new toy, you bring it. You kind of brag about how cool your new toy is. Well, a child in Germany sparked the evacuation of kindergarten on Wednesday by unearthing a second World War bomb, World War II bomb, um, bringing it back to the classroom. The youngster found an incendiary bomb on a walk in the woods, and then carried the bomb into the kindergarten class. <laughs> Yikes! A police spokesman said after the strange object was spotted on a shelf, the teachers immediately notified police and took the children out to the playground, she added. Explosive experts rushed to the scene to retrieve the bomb and allowed the children to return to the kindergarten. Um, they later swept the site in the forest for other bombs and uh, made, you know, eventually gave it the all-clear. So look, Mommy! What I found on my walk, you know, you go on those little nature walks in kindergarten. I remember learning like in third grade about Giardia in the rivers. But, so the worst thing I could have brought back would have been Giardia. Giardia, isn't she a chef on the yeah. Food Network? Yeah, Chef Giardia. Yeah. She's like the, the least liked chef because she always causes stomach irritation. Really? Yeah. I think that's a different one you're thinking of. Hmm. Um, but boy, bringing back an explosive device, a bomb, a mine basically, boy. That's going to get you in trouble. This makes me think of, because it took place in Germany. Yeah.
3: And Arnold Schwarzenegger Schwarzenegger is from Austria. Ah. And he played an undercover kindergarten teacher in Kindergarten Cop.
2: Maybe that's where the story came from.
3: It's a bomb. Get to the (laughs) choppa.
2: Choppa. Get these kids to recess. I think Choppa is in uh, Iraq, isn't it? (laughs) Near that. <laughs> anyway, uh, good stuff. Watch out what your kids uh, are taking to, uh, to their show and tell. You don't want to have an explosion. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be back next hour. More fun, more inc- excitement about uh, learning to live a healthier life. Stick with us.
3: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your
1: guide on the side.
3: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the
2: Matt Townsend Show.
1: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now
2: on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy Tuesday to you. Hope you're having a wonderful day as you, you know, get back at it, knocking it down. It ain't easy. It really. It's life. I'm finding out. It seems to be kind of like Groundhog Day. If you're not careful, you just wake up, do it again, and then. Oh,
3: did I scare people? Really? Yeah. I, I don't. I think you surprised people there. What
2: no, you, I. It's you. Just do it again. Do it again. My kid asked me do the other again. day. He goes, "What did you and mom
0: do before I was born?" And I went, well, "We went to work." And then we came home and we <laughs> ate dinner and we went to bed. Kind of the same thing we do now, except with kids. And he went, Is oh, that boring? He said, That's boring. And I went, it yeah, is boring. Well, you know. But yeah, you're right. You get into kind of a rut and you just kinda do the same and, thing. And even it
2: could even be a good rut, but it's just it's just a rut. I mean, yeah. it's good, it's positive. It's life. So we our goal is to help you make it even a better life if we can. Today, by the way, we got a, a very, I think, interesting interview coming up about Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, journalists. We've had two, three, probably four, five, I don't even know how many, like half a dozen probably on the show over the last five years. Right. Who'd
3: you have? Huh?
2: Who'd you have? I don't remember their names. Oh. Me. They're not like rock stars. They just, they win this award because but It's of one something of the biggest awards you can win as a journalist. And what's the key to winning it? Is it just being a really tenacious journalist that gets all the facts right? Is it just your objectivity? Well, our guest today is going to talk about the fact that it's probably more about getting an emotional story told. Which conflicts with objective
0: journalism. If you put emotion into it, you're putting more of you, and that's not what you're supposed to do. It seems
2: like you you shouldn't necessarily bring all that emotion in. You're supposed to stay objective. I think they test you on
3: how to pronounce that word, too. Yeah, is it Pulitzer or Pulitzer? Hmm.
2: So if you were to say Pulitzer...
3: They might say, ooh, maybe next year. Didn't you mean Pulitzer?
2: So I think the point is we've got to decide, and our expert coming up will talk about it, what's journalism? Is journalism about objectivity? Which, by the way, they're very objective in their stories, and they tell them with such an emotional flair that people connect to them. That's what makes the story really sing. And by the way, we're emotional beings, so we probably would be attracted to such a thing.
3: Journalism is also a degree I didn't really do much with.
2: Really? Yeah. Well, look at you now. You're you're in Le a pseudo, you're in a pseudo <laughs> jur- journalistic role. Yeah. I mean, you're you're on the radio every day. People are like, "So you're in journalism?" I'm like, ah,
1: "Well,
0: uh, I read things from other people who I would call journalists."
2: Yeah. I'm more of
0: a... We're more in the... We're holding down the fake news end kind of, of journalism. pass the word
2: along sort of uh, mm-hmm. We dabble of, in uh, words. Yeah. I, that's why I'm, I get frustrated with Trump, because he makes fake news sound bad. Yeah. Like, come on, man. When what? for us, it's just a living.
3: <laughs> and I don't go near a journal. Uh, it's been
2: months that's since true. I've written in a journal. Yeah, you need to journal more. Not to... Not to Get down on you, but yeah. So we'll talk Pulitzer Prize winning stories and the, the emotion of journalism that needs to be put in every story. Plus, um, of course, uh, some headlines. Apparently, the healthcare act uh, isn't going to make it to vote. We're not. We're not getting there. I know more senators are bailing out, including Senator Lee from Utah. Guy from Kansas. Guy from Kansas. They're just. It's just not baked quite right yet no you didn't put enough baking soda or whatever i don't know i haven't i don't bake yeah
3: maybe they used powdered milk instead of flour like ah, i did once did you how'd that turn out the cookies didn't
2: taste bad my dad actually really liked them but they would stick to the roof of your mouth (laughs) but dad will eat anything (laughs) so (laughs) we'll we'll be uh we'll get get into some of the politics plus i've got we got to talk about this laser did you hear about the navy's new laser
0: yeah i saw it in action i
1: believe
2: yeah, didn't, isn't that cool? Yeah, we'll talk about that. That, by the way, if you are a drone, you ought to be shaking in your drone boots. Right. I have a story about lasers coming up. Oh, really? Yeah. A hair laser removal. No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Okay. A- aliens. Oh, really? Yeah. Really. Mm-hmm. Aliens and lasers. Absolutely. So all of that straight ahead. It's going to be huge. Uh, but first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country?
0: Thousands of people struggling to pay off their private student loan debt may get reprieve at least $5 billion in debt is missing crucial paperwork to enforce payments. Oh, please be me. Please be me. Creditors seeking to collect on past debts have reportedly hit a roadblock when trying to seek payment through the courts with insufficient ownership records and flawed documentation, the New York Times reports. The National Collegiate Student Loan Trust, one of the biggest owners of private student loan debt, has reportedly been unable to present legal paperwork showing it owns more than $5 billion in loan debt. The result is that many debts simply get wiped out in court. Samantha Watson, a 33-year-old mother of three, was taken to court over $31,000 in student loans. But the judge erased her debt after finding that the National Collegiate failed to establish the chain of title on the loans. Several other court cases in Texas, New Hampshire, and Ohio have also been tossed due to missing or flawed. Toss paperwork. them out. Toss Can them out. You imagine
2: that? Man, I you hope you got
0: thirty-one thousand dollars in debt, and the court, the, the court just goes, oh well, no, not anymore. Yeah, you got to track it. It's got to be connected. It's or like something. a renew lease on life. You know? <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> I'm free. On Monday, Netflix reported that it made two point seven billion in revenue for the second quarter of 2017 and turned a tidy profit, reporting sixty-six million in income up about 50% from the same period last year. Usually they don't make any money. Right. Usually they burn it all because they're just
3: trying to grow.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, turning a profit's kind of an interesting uh, turn of events for Thank
3: them. goodness cuz we need a season 4 of Fuller House. The
0: most important number it, it may be coming. The most important <laughs> number for investors of course was growth.
3: Uh, Netflix beat expectations.
0: It added 5.2 million customers in the, in total during the second quarter versus the forecast of 3 million so you know they, they beat their own projections 1.1 million of these new customers came from the u.s four million from overseas oh wow they're growing big outside the united states uh they premiered 14 new seasons of global netflix original series now those frustrate me because they look really interesting yeah. and then it's all in french
2: Oh, en français. and i'm so- not
0: reading my tv some of these countries get shows on Netflix before we do, too. Right? They have different regional. What a ripoff! They have 13 original comedy specials, six original documentaries, two original documentary series, nine original feature films, and seven seasons of original series for kids. Oh boy. They have one. It's uh, Puss in Boots from the Shrek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of interactive. That so, sword fighting cat. Yeah, he'll like pop up and say, "What should I do now?" And then your kid on, on my kid on his iPad will like pick oh, which version of the story. It's a choose your own av- How adventure cool. approach. That's great. And he loves it. He sits. There, I want to play that one again. You know. So he that's sees cool. it as a game, not as a show. Yeah. Now they want to take aim at the film business. The company announced that this year they will release 40 features that range. From big budget popcorn films to grassroots independent cinema, mm. all on that, all on the service itself. See, so these these are more two and a half hour movies rather than Holy a cow. series. Holy cow! Netflix right?
2: is, you know, stretching its borders. They expect to burn through $2 two
0: billion and two point five billion, two to two point five billion in cash this year, and they don't expect to generate any cash for many years to come. No okay, problem. So, They're yeah. just going to burn through money. Yeah, but you don't need to make money yet. You know what that means? They're going to raise the price on Netflix. They have to generate funds, and that comes out of you.
1: So (laughs) money goes up.
0: Facebook news. We all love Facebook news. Uh, they were spotted testing a new type of news feed earlier this year one that's designed to help you discover content across the social network beyond posts from your friends and pages that you already follow Hmm. during tests the feed was available through the Facebook app underneath uh, whatever some something uh, that seemed to confuse users who didn't understand the feed's purpose so people would stumble across it and be confused as to what all this this is because it's not grandma's cat it's like actual information you could use now the alternative feed is showing up for users under Facebook's More menu, where it is simply named Explore Feed.
1: Hmm.
0: So if you want to find stuff that you're not following... You just go...
3: Hmm. Okay. Hey, by the way... That's cool. Netflix got 91 Emmy nominations. That's it. 91. Yeah, they led the way. That's amazing. I mean, especially for a company that's not making any money. Right. They're doing great.
0: Well, they made a couple million this last quarter, but they're going to, you know buy paper clips and be done with it and finally for decades we have been listening to the skies using radio telescopes hoping to catch a faint chatter of alien signals (gasps) yes but we've heard nothing and one of the reasons might be that we're listening all wrong the scientists behind the search for extraterrestrial intelligence seti yeah that's the project the seti project now aiming to look for the telltale flashes of aliens communicating with lasers Ooh. It's a different approach to previous laser experiments, which assumed that ET would constantly be beaming signals towards us. The new laser SETI detector, currently seeking funding via Indiegogo, which is always the place you want to—yeah, that's where you go get your funding, get your alien detection mm-hmm. equipment funded. Uh, they could use these flashes. The project page says now SETI experiments, whether listening for a radio transmitter or searching for high-powered laser, have assumed that ET is on the air all the time so that whatever the instrument is pointed at, the signal will be there. Laser SETI is the first experiment to circumvent this assumption. Ooh. Laser SETI could find very short ping from anywhere in the sky. Wow. Indeed, it could detect a laser flash as short as a millisecond or less, and one that might not repeat for days, weeks, or even longer, or ever. Wow. In
2: essence, a sophisticated heat beam, which we called a laser. A
0: laser. <laughs> so, instead of a consistent, like, Solid yeah. beam. It'd right. just be flashes. They're looking for. This is scary. But of course, they need Indiegogo to make this happen.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, you need money, so that's where I would go. Right. Indiegogo. Put up your off. Put up your idea. Then make billions. So then go identify where the space alien. We've talked
0: are. about crowdfunding healthcare. Yeah, that was last week. And then today, crowdfunding alien detection systems.
2: Yeah, Reason. I
3: once knew an Indiegogo dancer.
2: Well, that, I think that's different. Oh, okay. Yeah, we well we already we talk to Pluto regularly, right? So we know there's alien life right. out there. Sure. He's getting bigger too. Yeah, that guy, that Pluto's not that dwarf planet anymore. He's still a dwarf planet, but he's a his his waistband's getting bigger.
3: He's trying to gain weight for the big weigh-in because they weigh him in, you know, frequently. I don't to see think if that's they're to still... make
2: him a real planet, though. Is the problem? Hmm.
3: Well, at least maybe he'll get to fight, you know, Mars. That'd be fun, huh?
2: Did you hear about this robot? You guys, do you guys think we should have robots securing our buildings? Depends. See, at BYU Broadcasting, we have an in, an incredible force of officers that secure our building, but they're humans, so they don't get right. in trouble. They don't. Mm. This apparently, they a do ro- check locked doors constantly. They though? do. In fact, I swear one was locked in a room, but I didn't want to let him out. yep, it's still locked. Okay, moving on. So uh, in a building um, in Washington, D.C., they had a 300-pound android that was supposed to, like, constantly be moving around the building for security and protection and stuff. Hmm. Well, apparently it fell into a fountain. Oh. Was it texting and not paying attention to where (laughs) it was going? (laughs) sounds like it. Yeah, it was was texting its girlfriend. Uh, its It's called the K5 machine. Um, which a silicon startup, Nightscope, developed, was reportedly patrolling in Washington Harbor complex in Georgetown when it fell down steps and landed on its side in the water. Zzz, zzz. Done. And now so, well, there's it, just a cute little picture of this droid kind of floating on its side in so the middle of the even the basic lake. technology that you can find in a Roomba, Yeah, he can't. Do that. Right. It's a Roomba and a garbage can. It's sad. It looks like R2-D2 without all the blue. And then it's got, like, you can tell the other security forces or at least maintenance bail- bailing it out of the thing. It so, looks like the nose cone of a rocket. Actually, Ooh. I think that's the funeral yeah. they're <laughs> burying at sea. A Viking funeral. Nice. Uh, this one uh, person on Twitter wrote, our DC office building got a security robot and it drowned itself. We were promised flying cars, but instead we got suicidal robots.
3: Maybe it's just a lousy job, and he decided he was done with it. Yeah, that's probably it. <laughs> Not a,
2: to get too dark. Oh, that is dark. Well, I mean, a better a robot than, yeah. I mean, you don't want your real security guards falling into, you know. We probably wouldn't. Well. Not unless they were saving a child or something. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Uh, maybe a better story for technology would be the Navy's new uh, creation of a laser uh, what are we weapon, basically. Like a cannon
0: of some kind,
2: yeah. but I don't know. And it, But it can now bring down drones. So a drone flies near a ship. They pull out this laser cannon. You can't see anything. It doesn't look like it's doing anything, and the next thing you know, the drone will explode. This sounds eerily
3: mm. close to a number of James Bond films. It's exactly
1: like a James Except
0: Bond film. Except they'd superimpose some sort of red line to show the laser
2: this is that was real you you can't see anything and the neat thing they say about it is it's the it's as far as uh technology goes you can actually make it destroy anything by just aiming it at it and it will only destroy that so if a motorboat's coming at you Mm. they can aim it at the engine of the boat and it'll basically melt the engine of the boat throw a popcorn if you want to do your popcorn, hmm. you can set it on a light popcorn setting nice. so you don't burn the popcorn. Do you think these have a button like your microwave? Uh-huh. It just says popcorn? Yeah. Nice. I think it just says one minute, two minutes. <laughs> Didn't you used to do this with your
3: toys or ants, though, in a exactly magnifying right. glass?
2: It's a, in fact, they said it's just like it has basically the same technology as a laser pointer but at a bigger scale.
3: Oh, wow. Except laser pointers are meant to annoy.
2: Well, but they also apparently can burn corneas. Really? Hmm. That's why it's kind of dangerous to point them at your eyeball. You didn't know that. Who said that? Oh, he can't even hear because of the other issue. Oh well. Wow. Yeah. Don't look into. Don't look at your laser pointer. I walked in today and you were like playing. Hey, I got a laser in my eye game. And you then stop that. And then
3: I, I you let you trouble. play with it, and I couldn't. For some reason, I was kind of mesmerized, and I was yeah, chasing it up the walls and. <laughs> Here, kitty, kitty.
2: Yeah, so that's pretty cool. The, lay, the the Navy's on it. So if you have uh, a drone that you've been playing with, just don't play anywhere near, near a Navy Yard because they'll shoot it out of the air. And you won't even know why. It'll just come back kind of melted in 10 pieces. Ah, the Navy. They're on it. In the Navy. Okay, that's not saying... Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the key to Pulitzer Prize-winning journalism. What is it really? Would you believe it's emotional writing? Hmm. Is emotional writing what journalists do? Stick with us. Interesting insight up next. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, we are getting our next guest on the line, and as, as we are doing that, we were talking about Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. Again, I can't remember the exact number, but over like the last five or six years of the show, probably at least five Pulitzer Prize winners did, on the show. Did you speak to Roger Ebert before he passed? No. Was he a Pulitzer Prize winner? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's it's a really crazy question because you wrote we wrote that great movie review on uh, that Polly Shore movie. How, how did he, Was it emotional? Did he, did he use emotional writing <laughs> to get it to make it happen? It's it's weird because we're now questioning journalism. President Trump, more than ever before, is questioning the ethics of journalism. You know, citing sources that are unnamed. Um, citing leaks that have come out of the White House or other places, and so journalism's taking a beating. It seems like, and as part of the beating, it honestly feels like uh, maybe we don't need journalists as much as we used to. <gasps> I know, because there's a weird difference that happens between, I guess, how we would classify a New York Times journalist and maybe a TMZ journalist. Clearly but maybe TMZ wouldn't call themselves journalists but they might so is are TMZ reporters journalists maybe they're gossip journalists but i think many journalists would say don't use the j word don't call yourself a journalist because you haven't been trained in the ethics and the morals and the codes of journalism you just you know hide behind palm trees in L.A., take pictures of Kardashians coming out of bars.
3: But then there are journalists, yeah, who break
2: the rules themselves. Oh yeah, happens all the time. Happens all the time. And so Trump has been basically calling out people as fake journalists, fake news, fake, 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 and that now all of a sudden a lot of the journalists are saying, "Hey, quit calling it fake." Like, hey, well, when you throw it out there about a hundred times, one of them's going to stick. Well, and then then there's a mistake with some CNN journalists that caused some problems because they were citing sources and stories that weren't necessarily legit. Then all of a sudden, everybody piles on and says, see, journalism's fake. We would never do that on this show, by the way. No, we wouldn't. When we when we make fake news up, we everyone knows it's fake.
3: Gosh, I hope
2: (laughs) one of the crazy things, though, I guess that we got to figure out in, in the. In journalism, is what is journalism today? Is anybody with a web show or a podcast now considered journalism? Do you remember um, the Drudge Report? Matt Drudge became the biggest newsmaker back in the in Clinton's day by bringing out the Monica Lewinsky story, and he wasn't ABC, NBC, CBS. He wasn't CNN, and he brought the White House. Uh, you know shined a huge light on the White House in a way they just flat out didn't want it to happen.
3: Well, I know that a lot of people in the voiceover world, for instance, say that once you get your first paid gig, or even if you're just a, a standard actor, and you get your first paid gig, you're now a professional. That's right. You know? Yeah. You, Could well, the same thing be said about journalism, though?
2: Once like you, you, you break a story, now you're a professional. But then, you know, all of the the uh, rags, what do they call them, the, all of the – um, crazy, extreme mudslingers? Yeah. What do they call them? The ones at the grocery store. I don't even know the names anymore because – Tabloids. All the tabloids are all of a sudden potential journalists, right? No, they, I wouldn't call them journalists. <laughs> exactly. So here's – that's the that's the problem we run into. And then – We then take it to the other side, Pulitzer Prize winning journalists, according uh, to the guests we're, we're getting on the phone. Karen Wall Jorgensen, who's done some research on the subject, found out that the majority of the people that are winning the Pulitzer Prize, they're not just, you know, objectively stating fact. They're actually writing their stories on very emotional topics. Then they're teaching and stating the facts. So it's the opioid opioid epidemic, and so they'll go tell one story of a family stricken by uh, opioids and drug addiction, and they tell it in such a moving way with all of the facts intertwined that it becomes something you want to read, and it's objective. But is it objective if you're invoking so much emotion? Hmm. And some of that emotion, by the way, wouldn't necessarily be – it would be the emotion created by the journalist. So are you talking manipulation? I think what it is is it's kind of the mix, the perfect mix maybe, of entertainment and journalism. Okay. So you wouldn't call it manipulation? Then. No. But it is still the uh, the number one prize for journalism is to be a Pulitzer Prize winner. And if you win the Pulitzer, you probably have to have some ability to entertain. And so, emotional writing is probably part
3: of that. So maybe you're only a journalist if you win the Pulitzer.
2: You're, yeah, well, maybe we should be calling these people <laughs> entotainment journalists, like infotainment. Infotainment, yeah. Hmm. But then again, that's not as exciting as journalism. And remember, journalism is the fourth estate, right? Is that what we call it? The fourth branch of government are the journalists that are protecting us. So if you're going to protect our democracy, do you need to do it with a lot of emotional writing or just the facts, ma'am? Just the facts. See, this well, you is, do want readers. dilemma. You do want readers. You need readers. And this is the dilemma I think journalism faces because now you have President Trump calling them all fake news. Uh, Then you have the problem with the fact that very few people are reading or less people – fewer people are reading than used to read the newspaper. So now you got to keep subscription rates up. And how do you do that but make it interesting? But if you make it too interesting, then it becomes fake news. If you're making stuff up. So it's a crazy battle that they're facing. And uh, there is probably no right way to do this. How do you handle it? And then you is we saw what happened with Fox News. They've led the ratings forever. And now one by one, all of their show hosts have been eliminated and fired and moved on. And they've all quit. And yet their ratings were booming. And what happens when they move to another station?
3: Did somebody shine a spotlight on them and expose them or something yeah, kind
2: of and there was a lot of controversy right so it's a it's a wild, wild dance that they're doing in the in the world of journalism as a person that studied journalism and not a real journalist let's be real, but uh, as a person that studied it it's I think it's critical we have to have somebody willing to push back on uh, the White House but we Probably ought to make sure we're doing it with the highest standards and ethical standards. And I honestly think if people writing a story make it more engaging and emotional while still telling the facts and the truth, I think it's great because then more people will get involved in reading the news. Do you think that they are
3: absolutely necessary, though, when we have a system in place of checks and balances with the other two branches of government?
2: Yeah. We, yeah. Because they're all in cahoots. Not to be negative. But yeah, they're all in cahoots. You know what I mean? Nothing gets done. Nothing gets done in Congress. So who do you believe? If in, then it all just depends, I guess, on your persuasion. If you tend to f- follow Democrats, you'll believe the Democrats. If you believe the Republicans, you believe the Republicans. But we need somebody out there that's actually getting us some of the facts. But I think we also need to be incredibly careful of the sourcing of facts because that's too easy to say. Unknown sources – or un uh, or what was it? Uh, the term that they they seem to love um, would be like uh, unnamed sources. but the problem is those unnamed sources out of the White House could be the president sending his message out, or could be somebody that hates the president that's in his cabinet or whatever that's trying to just spread. Could you just say chaos? It's been said. One person once said this. Let's take a break. Uh, When we come back, we'll continue the journey about uh, journalism and also Pulitzer Prize winning stories. Emotionality. Is that the key to a winning a Pulitzer Prize? Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. You know, how do you win journalism's greatest award, the Pulitzer Prize? Is it great reporting skills? Is it just the facts, ma'am? Or is it investigative journalism? Well, maybe it is representing a very important uh, social issue that's important to the community. Well, here to help us understand journalism a little bit more and what really goes behind some of the best writing is Professor Karen Val Jorgensen. She's a research uh, director of research development and environment at uh, School of Journalism at Cardiff University in the U.K. And today she's going to help us understand that perhaps the big key to uh, winning a Pulitzer Prize may be an emotional storytelling um, ability of The journalists, We appreciate you being here with us. Thank you, uh, Professor Karen Val Jorgensen.
5: Well, thank you for having me.
2: This is, a, I think, a fascinating undertaking. You went and reviewed past uh, Pulitzer uh, Prize-winning journalist writings, and what did you come up with? What did you find is the key? What separates a Pulitzer Prize winner from everybody else?
5: Well, um, two things, uh, primarily for First of all, Pulitzer Prize-winning stories are based on painstaking journalistic work. So the, the journalists who win these prizes often work together in teams to do very in-depth investigative research. Uh, and that is something that requires a lot of resources.
2: So really, it's so a, a team. a lot of it's a team effort and a lot of resources to be able to get all of the research done that's necessary.
5: Well, that's right, and that's why it's traditionally been these very uh, sort of um, uh, important national news organizations like the New York Times and the Washington Post that that have scooped up the prices, although in in recent years we've seen more and more sort of collaborative projects going on with new actors like ProPublica, for instance. Mm. second very important element that I discovered through my research is that actually this kind of, you know, facts-based, painstaking research is not enough necessarily to win a Pulitzer Prize. What you also need is this very strong ingredient of emotional storytelling. Hmm.
2: And that really is, is that what engages readers to read?
5: Well, it, it seems to be the case that in order to make these very abstract Big stories that come alive, we need to be able to anchor them in the experience of actual individuals who are who are living through these events
2: yeah, does i mean i and I guess that's that's kind of um to some they might question, well, I thought it was kind of an either or of the painstaking fact based research or uh which seems much more objective or the emotional kind of writing side, which might seem a little more subjective. Um, do you see it as a problem of subjectivity if we bring in too much emotional writing?
5: It's important to recognize, and, and this is what my research has shown, that objective reporting is not necessarily mutually exclusive with actually telling emotional stories. So, um, the sociologist Gay Hockman wrote a very famous piece back in the 1970s where she talked about uh, what she called the strategic ritual of objectivity in journalism. And she suggested that because objectivity is so important. Uh, in quality journalism, journalists engage, such as leaving out their own emotions, relying on uh, source quotations to inject opinions, um, and uh, really generally focusing on delivering the facts. But what my research has shown is that this strategic ritual of objectivity kind of coexists quite happily with what I call a strategic ritual of emotionality. And what I mean by that is that just as journalists are strategically objective in the way that they do their work, in strategic ways to actually engage their audiences. And so for me, uh, the two uh, coexist uh, very happily and produce high-quality journalism that audiences are able to relate to and engage with.
2: And I guess that is... The key, I mean it's one thing to to have this uh this strategic ritual of objectivity, and we need that. We need we need it to be objective and free from as much bias as possible, except it does seem like it would need to resonate with us as human beings. We're not robots, we're not automatons, we're 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 humans. And um it it, it seems like especially these stories about PTSD or the opioid epidemic or um you know, just any anything that really highlights a, a, a universal pain, um, it it would be just as valuable to me to know not just that you're objective, but that you can connect to me as a human, as the reader.
5: Well that that's absolutely right. So this kind of uh, personalized storytelling is absolutely crucial understanding the experience of other people uh, who might be very, very different from us. We can often find it very difficult to understand what uh, everyday life is like, let's say, for a veteran who's suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, for a single mother who's relying on food stamps, or indeed for somebody um, who has uh, just survived a major earthquake and has lost their home and their family. But... It is through telling these stories that, that concretely demonstrates, you know, what's it actually like if um, you are uh, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. So that, like, like you're you're saying, is a way of making us connect to these universal emotions um, that we all experience because we've all loved and lost. Um, And we all recognize these emotions, even if we've never had the concrete experiences that people live through and that actually shape these big events um, that Pulitzer Prize winning stories are often about.
2: Yeah. No, I'm with you on that. Karen, let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Karen Val Jorgensen of Cardiff University in the UK. She's walking us through some work she did there in the School of Journalism on Pulitzer Prize winning storytelling. And how it is really not just about objectivity, but also emotionality is most likely to win you a Pulitzer. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see and be the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, today we're talking with Dr. Karen Val Jorgensen. She is a, a professor um, and the Director of Research Development and Environment at the School of Journalism at Cardiff University in the, United, in the UK. And uh, she is walking us through some research she has done on emotional journalism, especially as it applies to Pulitzer Prize-winning stories. She's been talking to us about the importance of really having strategic ritual objectivity uh, the uh, This, uh, you know, kind of journalists need to be ritualistically objective, fact-based, you know, c- quoting their sources. But they also, she suggests, want to have strategic ritual of emotionality where they have the ability to actually share r- the experiences of those that they're reporting on in such a way that it can connect to the hearts and minds of others. Have I got that fairly accurate, Karen?
5: That's absolutely right, yes.
2: Oh, we're still struggling with your phone, but uh, I i just like the problem is it won't. It's a problem we can't necessarily fix right this second. So let me just ask you this, Karen, and see if we can make the phones work any better. How do we how do we inject emotionality? Is this a level of like maturity or is this, as you were saying, because a lot of these Pulitzer Prize winning Um, stories are written by teams, does it help to have a team to create such a balance between emotion and objectivity? Or how does the journalist make sure that their emotion doesn't alter the facts, alter the the real impact of the story?
5: Well, that's a really interesting question, because uh, one of the fascinating things is that They don't teach you in journalism school how to make your stories emotional. They teach you how to gather the facts. Um, And so it's something that journalists have to learn on the job. It's something that sociologists would call tacit knowledge, knowledge that you sort of incur through the way you're being socialized in your profession. So it's something that journalists learn to do and something that they master once they actually know how to do the sort of nuts and bolts work of actually reporting the facts and gathering the information, um, and so it requires a kind of emotional intelligence on the part of the journalists to understand how to find the right kinds of stories that are going to resonate with audiences. Mm. Um, and yeah.
2: No, yeah, that's to me that is. It, it is. It's it's kind of a. It's an art form, but they are writers and it seems like the best writers overall are people that know how to connect to the heart.
5: Well, that's right. I mean, it's essential to cultivate compassion and to make audiences care. So, um can I can I just give you a a, a quick example from one of the stories yes. that I've looked at?
2: Yes. That'd be great, please. Yeah,
5: so, so one one um, story that particularly interested me was uh, the story that won the Pulitzer Prize in the public service reporting category in 2016, and that's usually a category that's associated with very hardcore investigators, which again is a news agency that's associated with very objective reporting. And this, the series of stories that won the Pulitzer were um, uh, was focused on Um, what happens um, in the seafood industry? So what are the working conditions like for people who provide the seafood that ends up on our tables, in our supermarkets, and in our restaurants? And even though this story was based on lots and lots of research, lots and lots of facts about labor conditions in the seafood industry, it actually opened with this account of the experience of slaves, um, uh, in Bur- or from Burma who were actually forced to work in the seafood industry in Indonesia. So um, to- just to read to you quickly from the opening of the series, it starts as follows. It starts, the Burmese slaves sat on the floor and stared through the rusty bars of their locked cage hidden on a tiny tropical island thousands of miles from home. Just a few yards away, other workers loaded cargo ships with slave-caught seafood that clouds the supply networks. But the eight imprisoned men were considered flight risks, laborers who might dare run away. They lived on a few bites of rice and curry a day in a space barely big enough to lie down, stuck until the next trawler forces them back to sea. So so this is Mm. is a, a very clear example of how... You use these almost kind of novelistic stories as a way of putting audiences on the ground, of seeing what actually happens, um, what are the kinds of underpinning, puts us into the lived experience of these slaves. Uh, working in the seafood industry, and maybe makes us think twice about um having those prawns the next time we go out for for a meal
2: right and it really uh, and you can see that it 's not like it's it 's full of so much embellishment it 's really just like you said, helping us dial in the actual lived experience of the participant i mean really um I guess to create a, a change that is memorable. You Most of us would want the facts more, but more importantly, we'd want to almost go there, and it's almost especially as a print journalist, it seems like the ability to be able to take us on the journey and be in the boats um, while're they're, where they're holding these slaves, um, that really would be their job to make sure that they get us all the way there.
5: Well, that's right, and I think that's traditionally one of um, the kind of features we associate with the best of journalism is able to take us to places and to see the lives of people that we might not otherwise encounter. Um, So in a way, journalists act as the kinds of eyewitnesses uh, on the part of the public, and the more concrete the details are able to provide us with, And the more they can sort of put us inside the minds of the people who are living through these events, uh, the more powerful um, is the kind of resonance that that can create with audiences.
2: Yes, absolutely. Well, Karen, thank you. Um, Boy, uh, brilliant work, I think, and a beautiful insight, I think, for all of us, especially as so many people are out there throwing out this uh, term fake news news. Um, But really what this becomes is as you listen to it is it becomes real news and and I guess every journalist ought to aspire to at least the quality of those two um, rituals as she was defining strategic ritual of objectivity and a strategic ritual of emotionality being able to honor the heart and the mind of those in the stories but also um, keeping a strategic ritual of being objective to the facts. And again, that's um, that might be being dismissed in today's day and age where it's easy to just grab the headline and to push it out there. It's easy to just um, chase the story with unnamed sources. And it's important that a journalist can have unnamed sources. But um, one of the things I loved in uh, in my journalistic studies was multiple sourcing. Right. Get two or three or four sources that are saying the same thing before you report something, especially before you just throw out this term, unnamed sources. I think, again, in a world where everybody is using leaks to promote their position and their agenda, especially like when you think about Washington, D.C., uh, the, the leaks can be coming from anywhere and by anywhere. We've we've already heard uh, examples of the White House leaking certain information intentionally, but even uh, we've heard of... Um, the FBI director, Comey, through a friend leaking information in order to get uh, some parts of a story out that needed to be out. And so we know it's part of the world there. But as far as journalists go, it's, it's critical that they double source and remain objective. And also what I didn't realize as importantly was it's important that they tell the story in a way that we can all hear it. I mean, how much went down on Ferguson? Do you remember how much uh, backlash and, and, and interest and intrigue in the media there was because of the Ferguson shootings and um, and the riots there? How powerful would it be to actually be able to then access some really effective writing by journalists who could take – any of us into the situation and help us better understand what 's going on in inner city America, what might be going on in Chicago when it comes to uh, gang violence and um, deaths there when it what 's going on in some of the you know the, the different battles that are happening over other legislation of our country or uh, illegal immigration there 's power if we allow these journalists to let us into the minds and hearts of others so appreciate Karen Val Jorgensen and her work there at Cardiff University in the UK. It's just learning, folks. That's all it is, right? No harm, no foul. We're just here to learn and figure out how we can be better consumers of the media as well. We want objectivity. We also want emotionality to take it a little deeper. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. That's our number one of the show. We'll be back next hour. More fun straight ahead.
5: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
2: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
2: BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Top of the morning to you. Hope you're having a great day. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. My oh my. Happy Hot Dog Day. Hot
3: dog, hot dog, hot day.
2: a great song yeah let's see tofu put a song together like that <laughs> tofu will never be able to uh, put together such a nice jingle what do you put on your hot dog uh everything i can except onions oh yeah mm. banana peppers those are nice Mmm. little chili wouldn't be bad little cheese on my hot dog or i just like uh a little ketchup, mustard. Okay. I even like a little mayo on my hot dog. No. Yeah. Cheese-filled? Oh, that would be great. Why not? While really? we're at it. Yeah. Wow. It's hot dog day. If you haven't had a hot dog in a long time, you're probably healthier than the rest of us. <laughs> but <laughs> hey, you, you know, need to celebrate it. When I worked at In-N-Out Burger, yeah? during the summertime
3: at their employee parties and at the softball tournaments... Mm-hmm. The only times that they would bring out the In-N-Out hot dogs.
2: Oh, really? Yes, that's something I don't know that, that I've you ever can't had. Go in and, and order and in their stores. So they just bring it out on on special occasions. Yes, like today, hot dog day. Hot dog day. What do you put on your hot dog? Uh, if it's a J dogs mm. or a K dogs hot dog,
3: I I just like the K dog sauce, the special sauce, and jalapenos, <sighs> and that's it. You like a hot dog? Oh yeah. I'm not into that. I am a hot dog.
2: You know, Terry can't get enough of uh, the the special meat called hot dog. Huh? Did you just get a little, you just had to swallow? A little bit. Why are swallowing that? a hot dog?
0: It's just kind of like mystery meat.
2: Is it even meat?
0: We don't know. <laughs> I've heard all kinds of stories.
2: But it's whatever it is, it's Americana and it's but why? yummy.
0: Why is it Americana? Yummy!
2: And by the way, why do the pol why why do Polish dogs get such a such a good reputation? Where
3: did you Poland feel, come from? You feel cultured when you eat them. Is that it? Just like the meat. The meat is cultured and you'll feel cultured. <laughs>
2: I love it. Really, I really do love hot dog day. And I think any day could be a hot dog day. Just like, you know, hey mom, can we pull some of those hot dogs out and have hot dogs on Sunday? Yeah. Yeah. You mean like pull them out of the ground? Did you guys grow them? Yeah, we grow them in the ground. Yeah. They're a little dirty, but once you rinse them off, mm-mm, good. They taste better when you do it yourself. So today we celebrate hot dogs. Uh, we also, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, apparently, boy, uh, Donald Trump, you know, he's not having a great record. Wrong. Of passing legislation. Wrong. He says he is. Yeah.
0: But he says he's passed more than any other president well except FDR cuz he was dealing with the great
2: recession. Right. But I mean this is I guess legislation that people had to to negotiate and legislate. He he he's passed more by just signing things. Yeah, like executive order. Yeah, that doesn't seem like legislation. His first was when he declared the day he was
0: inaugurated a national holiday.
2: Oh yeah. That makes sense. I mean or sometimes day of remembrance or whatever right. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Sometimes you wait until you've, like, become the greatest president of all time. Before you start talking about it? Well, then, before others would start Or talking. maybe you let the historians decide. You're wrong. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Apparently,
0: we're wrong. Either way. But then he, he backed up and he says that he thinks because he didn't want the Washington Post to give him any more Pinocchios because he doesn't like the Pinocchios. Oh, he
2: doesn't? Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, When they fact check, they give number of Pinocchios on how big of a lie this right, is. Right, right. And he said, I better say think because the Washington Post is watching. Oh, so he
2: is—he's kind of regulating himself so he, a little he, bit more. He made a joke. Hey, there are no strings on him. Yeah, he's not a—he's not a puppet. He's not a—he's not a doll. Mm. Anyway, his his uh, his ratings are—they're taking a hit. Depends on who you talk to, right? People that
0: support him, they really like him. Yeah. Which kind of you know, and the idea that you're a supporter, you're going to like him. So his approval rating among supporters is fairly high. Well,
2: but I guess his overall approval rating as a president oh, yeah. is the lowest we've ever had as a president but you have up to, to this point. You have to talk to, say, Democrats about
0: that. Why? Well, because, you know, they ask a general cross-section of the population. So you're going to get people that didn't that aren't supporters of well, him that are saying they don't support him. And that, that,
2: that is one of the issues is that, um, interestingly, President Trump's numbers are at... Um, The lowest of any president up to this point. But Hmm. Democrats are also uh, seen as obstructionists right now. Right. More so than, you know,
0: except that shouldn't matter since you have both houses of Congress.
2: Well, and the White House, except it may not bode well for them in the midterms if they're seen as obstructing the work of Mr. Trump. Anyway, all that excitement <laughs> straight ahead. It's fun to watch this as it,
0: as it yeah. rolls out every day. Well, a lot like, of people, some of this
2: is absurd. Well, a lot of people are exhausted. Well, there's that too. But uh, that's why we do the show, to make sure that you you see a maybe healthier, lighter side of the whole thing. I mean, sure, it is just a democracy. Probably the greatest democracy of all time. If we should say so ourselves. Yeah. And uh, so so we'll get to that. Plus, we're going to get to some clear thinking about the hard issues. Boy, we have got – we've got an emeritus professor from Yale that is – that has put together a book. uh, It's going to walk us through how to actually think more clearly about some of the most difficult issues we face as a country. Immigration, poverty, religious rights – And the problem might – I mean there's a lot of problems with it, but how do you get clarity in the thinking? Because you probably can't solve problems that aren't clear. And it seems like a lot of times our biggest issues get muddied. We muddy them up so we can't really solve them. So we'll get to that in a few minutes as well. Plus, uh, you know, of course, we'll do the headlines with Terry and just more empty news uh, from the Matt Townsend news team. First on the scene, fifth on the facts. That's the, the MT goal. News Team, first on the scene, fifth on facts. And then the Apple Bite, because we're affiliated with Apple. Washington State Apples, that is. Yes. Hmm. Now, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on?
0: Police in Minnesota reveal on Tuesday that a loud sound was heard before officers opened fire on an Australian woman who called 911. Justine Damon, 40, was fatally shot on Saturday by officers responding to her 911 call about a possible sexual assault near her home. The noise that preceded the shooting allegedly startled the officers. Uh, Investigators with the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension said Officer Mohammed Noor, who fired at Damon, hit her in the abdomen and has refused uh, to this point to give any interviews to investigators. Reports out this morning say that the loud sound may have been aerial fireworks, what? But investigators are having trouble finding out more because, again, the officer will not speak with them. The Australian Prime Minister and the woman's family are looking for answers.
2: Oh, wow. This so maybe startled, maybe by fireworks? There or was
0: somewhere? one story that he fired through the door of the car. As she was standing in her pajamas, as she called Leaning in,
2: talking to the cop. Yeah,
0: so many questions, mm. but he's not talking to anyone. Okay. Uh, Don is not doing so well in recent days. Don has become noticeably less defined, and despite whatever ambitions Don may have once held, any change of doing something monumental is quickly fizzle- fizzling out. Is this Don our boss? Meanwhile, on the other side of the country, Hillary is brewing... This is not a political drama. It's a meteorolo- meteorological one. Tropical Ooh. Storm Dawn, oh. located 150 miles southeast of Barbados, is the fourth named storm of the season. Uh, this side of the Washington Post. Meanwhile, over the Pacific, Tropical Storm Hillary is forming. <laughs> it's actually entirely coincidental The yes. Dawn and Hillary names as the names rotate. Depending. It just seems
2: but, like, though, they, they wouldn't have put Barack in there. Well, no, but Dawn and Hillary are common names. Yeah. Well,
5: that's because he'd rather have a puppet as president of no the United puppet, States. No puppet. And it's pretty clear. You're the puppet.
0: Oh, pre- these storms wow. are fighting. See, that just brings back memories.
2: Doesn't that... I I
0: miss the old days. <laughs> I miss those good old fights. So yeah, the, uh, the uh, so in the Atlantic they rotate names. Used, they the list is a six-year rotation. Oh yeah, right. And they go male, female. As, Tropical uh, Storm Dawn is really sucking wind. Now in the Pacific, it's even more complicated. Storms are named based on location, using an Eastern Pacific, Central Pacific, and West Pacific list of names. Man, does Dawn blow? Right? So it says which are also recycled every six years. So it's completely random that these two names came so up. So it's together just at the it's out time. of
2: nowhere. It's just, it's not a bunch of weathermen that are like, hey, 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 hey. This will be funny. Let's get Don and Hillary So Don's in the Atlantic, Hillary's Uh, in the Pacific. Sounds like uh, Hillary's going to peter out here. Yeah, she doesn't have the energy there. Right. Quite robust Boy, the energy
0: there. A notorious jewel thief with an illicit career spending six decades has been caught stealing once again. But she wasn't after uh, sparkly gems this time. Police near Atlanta said Doris Payne, 86, was arrested at a Walmart around 5 p.m. Monday and charged with shoplifting $86.22 worth of merchandise. What? So she's a notorious jewel thief, but she got caught shoplifting at Walmart.
1: Busted.
0: Payne was the subject of a 2013 documentary film, The Life and Crimes of Doris Payne, that detailed her feats. In an interview with the Associated Press last year, she casually acknowledged, I was a thief... She's well-known in fine jewelry circles, and uh, and authorities say that she has pocketed expensive jewelry from stores around the world. Authorities have said she has used at least 22 aliases over the years and probably got away with with more often than she was caught. Though She has done several stints in prison. The Jewelers Security Alliance, an industry trade group, sent out bulletins as early as the 1970s warning about her. Watch out! She said when she was a little kid, she walked into her uncle's store where he sold watches. He put a watch on her. Then he turned to talk to somebody else, and she just walked out the door. She's like, wow, this is easy. And she said that started her life of crime. I
2: remember my first time I stole from a family member. So
0: she's a pro, and she gets caught in a Walmart. Walmart. She's a fine jewelry thief. She got stuff in the electronics department, a couple things in the pharmacy. And they're like, well, she didn't pay for that as she walked (laughs) out the door. Hey, ma'am, you didn't pay for that wash rag. Okay, so, and finally, in Philadelphia, the Water Department there is trying to figure out what caused thousands of cockroaches to emerge from a manhole and swarm a neighborhood. Pat Wall says the bugs emerged Sunday night and have been evading her Bridesburg neighborhood ever since. She says the bugs were so thick residents couldn't see the ground. Water Department wow. spokesperson John DelGallo says uh, crews were out Tuesday investigating. He says a sewer inlet might be clogged with food and trash that can attract the bugs, which are known to multiply in warm weather. In the meantime, residents say they are spraying their homes and stomping the bugs to keep them away.
2: Oh, can you imagine? It's gross. Looking outside and your entire driveway is moving it's or whatever. It's just moving around. You're like, wow, this is be a good day. See, but the door-to-door uh, pest control people love that. Right. They're all over those neighborhoods. Uh, Because normally they have to, like, go find bugs. Yeah. Look at that. Your neighbor has some of these bugs. You might want to watch out. But now it's like, do you see your driveway, lady?
0: (laughs) It's moving.
2: (laughs) You know it's not supposed to move like that, right? (laughs) Crazy. Hey, did you hear um, Chelsea Clinton got on Twitter and Uh was firing back? Um, Yeah. Apparently a Fox News host made a comment about her mother, Hillary. It's just so weird. Um, it like daily?
0: Yeah, it's oh, okay. pretty
2: much every day. Fox News, uh, The Five contributor, Lisa Booth, said in a Friday segment that the 2016 Democratic presidential nominee would literally sell her daughter, would sell her daughter to be president. Literally sell her only child to be president. That's how just messed up backwards Hillary Clinton is. She would sell her daughter. That they said they would, she would sell her daughter for a vote. For one single vote? Well, no, she'd probably No, nah, You gotta you gotta get a good ROI,
0: right? You gotta get at least a city worth of votes. It's an ROC return it's on it's your, your Chelsea. Own kid. Come
1: on.
2: So then Chelsea, I mean, imagine that conversation when Chelsea calls her mom and is like, "Mom, you really wouldn't sell me, would you?" Was the city of Philadelphia worth me? Yeah. Is Ooh. that equal, Mom? Come on. Is that equal? So here, here's some audio of. Hillary's response back to Chelsea when Chelsea asked, Mom, would you sell me for, to win the presidency? <coughs> Excuse me. Mm. <coughs> Mom? <coughs> Mom? <coughs> Mom? <coughs> Mom? Mom, you're not answering me. By the way, that is the best way to get out
3: of something. Just start coughing uncontrollably. Yeah, that's It works for her. And you don't have to answer.
2: Except, yeah. So, you know... Poor Chelsea. No, but then Chelsea came back and said, no, she wouldn't. This was actually her Twitter. No, she wouldn't. She's actually responding to Lisa Booth. Oh, no, she wouldn't. <laughs> I've never doubted and always known that I was the most important part of her life. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Now as a mom, I even, I'm even i even more grateful to my mom. And she never would sell me. I mean, lease me? Sure. Rent me out Maybe maybe on an internship sort of basis. She would never sell me. How do you Does everybody realize Hillary's out of the race? No, they don't. So we need to probably quit talking about her. We don't end She wouldn't sell her child, her child. She wouldn't. Says who?
0: And Obama's not the president anymore. Yeah. He keeps being brought up, too. I know. It's like,
2: really? I thought he was on vacation still. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, it's President Trump now. And he's already sold his children. Well. I mean in a good way. Right.
3: Yeah. I just don't know if people have gotten used to saying President Trump yet.
2: Yeah. It's hard. He's, he's got so much going for him. Did you see uh, the uh, America's Got Talent last night? Uh, no. He danced on America's Got Talent. Was it someone impersonating him? I don't think so. You think it was actually him? Oh, Yeah. You've got to see it because he had four Secret Service background dancers, backup dancers, and they were shaking it. It was amazing. Hey,
3: if he would do WWE appearances, why wouldn't he do America's Got Talent? Right,
2: totally. I am usually not into watching that, Uh but when I walked in and saw Trump dancing with his tie hanging down. Was it like way low? It was lower than, but it was the real guy. Scotch tape holding it together? I didn't see any Scotch tape because he was moving too fast. Right. And by the way, his Secret Service detail, they've got the moves. You know who Paula Abdul is? I've heard the name before. Yeah. They're better dancers than she is. Oh, wow. It's huge. Huge. Man, I'm telling you, good stuff. Good stuff. Hey, next up, we're going to be talking about clear thinking. Clear thinking about the hard issues. How do we sort through all the chaos and uh, misinformation going around To Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Although the Pledge of Allegiance says that we are one nation under God, it seems our country is more divided than ever. But what are the top five things that drive our country apart more than ever? And uh, how can we create clearer thinking about those five issues? Well, here to talk to us about uh, about it today is uh, Professor uh, Peter Shuck, Professor of Law Emeritus at Yale University, and is the author of a, a new book, One Nation Undecided, Clear Thinking About Five Hard Issues That Divides Us. And we're excited to have you here, Peter. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. What a great, um, I think, undertaking. Boy, the book, incredibly detailed, it, it, taking on some of the biggest issues that we face, But uh, the thing I think that most interested me about the book and the title is clearer thinking. It seems like we have got anything but clarity today.
4: (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, let me mention, can I mention two things about your intro that uh, I I want to refine a little bit? One is that um, we are not more uh, sharply divided today than at other times in our history. There have been uh, been other times like this, and much worse, uh, particularly around the Civil, Civil War,
2: yeah, right. So I'm, That's good, I'm yeah. Much
4: more opti- I'm much more optimistic about our future than uh, that might suggest. And the other thing is, these are not the five uh, most important issues, uh, um, uh, but they are very important ones, and ones on which we're uh, very sharply divided.
2: And, and they really are in co- complex, and one of the things I noticed in your book... Is about the complexity uh, first I guess help us understand what you mean by clarity I know as a professor you you've created a pretty clear definition of, of and the points that create clarity what what do we need to have a clearer view of these issues
4: okay well I, I discussed this in the introductory chapter and uh, clear thinking to me um, means uh, first of all an open-mindedness that is uh, a a, a an admission that we uh, don't know as much as we think we know and things about which we feel the most confident are often wrong. So it's it's kind of an attitude. And then in terms of uh, uh, the thinking itself, um, we need uh, 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 to be clear about uh, the facts, which is extremely difficult to Mm. do. And uh, we ought to be more humble about uh, uh, our knowledge and grasp of the facts um, because mo- many of the most relevant facts we don't understand very well yeah. uh, what before we make up our opinions. Uh, second is to be clear of the values that uh, animate us in thinking about issues. And uh, in my view, um, the, this, there ought to be a very clear, uh, powerful relationship between the facts and, and our values. We, we often start with our values when, in fact, we ought to be starting with uh, clearer understanding of the facts, and then our values should be molded to that. Except in areas like religion, which of course is so important at BYU, right. uh, there you know the values are. You start with a certain stipulation of uh, of uh, religious values, and uh, the empiricism is uh, is less important. But in the kinds of issues I'm discussing, uh, the the facts are. Ought to be are and ought to be in my view right uh, very critical to make up our minds about what we believe
2: especially because we, we it seems like we the facts are the last some people know the facts but you have to actually actively research almost like you like you did in your book to get to all of the facts of, of any situation or any condition we're fighting right
4: and in today's climate in today's political climate uh, the facts have been dis- disparaged uh, uh, with the you know the, the epithet of fake news and, and so forth, and that's extraordinarily, uh extraordinarily uh, damaging, corrosive uh, uh, aspect to current debates. There are facts. The facts are dif- difficult uh, to find, and uh, people would certainly interpret facts differently. All that's fine, but uh, to say that there are no facts or that the facts that uh, people who have studied uh, these things for their entire lives or just uh, camouflage, is very, very pernicious.
2: Mm, I agree. It, so so the, you're talking about clarity is created by open-mindedness, facts, values, and uh, what else? What and, else? Then,
4: and, and then the other thing is the recognition of trade-offs. Hmm. Uh, that almost every, not almost, every difficult issue um, uh, involves very severe trade-offs between values, or among values, because sometimes there are more than two. Um And we need to be very clear what those trade offs are and I think people tend to gravitate toward their opinions without considering the trade offs that uh, are necessarily uh um, necessary to arriving at a wise uh, wise decision so clarifying what those trade offs are and then making up your mind as to as to the terms on which you trade off different values is uh, is crucial to clear thinking.
2: Oh yeah. And again, w- boy, when you put it this way, it-, it is really no wonder we struggle on so many issues because Open-mindedness isn't necessarily there because, like you said, we tend to gravitate towards our own opinion. We don't necessarily have all the facts. Some of the facts are skewed. Some are hidden. Some are just uh, even – and I, I love how you bring it up in, in certain issues like on the topic of poverty. We don't even know necessarily how to define the issue to actually know what facts we're talking about.
4: Right. Defining and measuring is very uh, is very tricky there are better or worse ways to define and measure i'm not suggesting that all opinions on this are equal they're not but uh but you need to you need to be clear about what you're measuring what you're defining before you can uh for he proceed coherently to to uh, think about
2: it mm. walk us through now um what you would say are the five the, the I guess the five hard issues that divide us. I mean, there's obviously dozens and dozens of others, but what are what are the what are the five that you take on in the book?
4: Yeah. Okay. Um, I should say that, that I, I have a short discussion in the intro as to why I selected these rather than others. It's not necessarily because they're the most important, though I think they are all ext- well, extremely important. Right. Uh, but I don't take on climate change, for example, because I think. The facts surrounding climate change are too technical and elusive uh, for uh, somebody like me to be able to shed much light on. Um, And I don't take on abortion, because um, abortion, it seems to me, is an issue in which uh, the moral convictions that animate positions on one side or the other, assuming that there are only two sides, and that's not quite right, Right. um, are deeply felt... Uh, deeply failed uh, values, and the facts uh, don't seem to matter to the people who are arguing about this, mm-hmm. or they or they take the facts as being uh, either ideologically or religiously prescribed. Hmm. So there isn't a hell of a lot.
2: Yeah, there's not a lot you can it. do. So, yeah.
4: So that's so that's why I didn't do abortion. The five that I did do are uh, poverty, uh, immigration, campaign finance. Um, affirmative action and religious exemptions from general rules. Hmm. Which, of course, is very yeah. very important uh, uh and one of the things i discussed in that last chapter on religious exemptions is the the utah compromise yeah um which was uh, which was very hopeful in 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 some ways in that it brought people radically different views um on uh on uh, those issues uh, together and uh, to to work out a you know a workable a workable compromise i don't know how it's holding up
2: i think so far so good uh i mean and uh-huh. it did it, what what i liked about the whole utah compromise is it, it did seem to cr- show some open mindedness um it was a, it seemed to you know, create a strong exploration of the facts. It seemed a little bit more values-based. There was a trade-off. It was still kind of political, you know, wrangling. And but I mm-hmm. mean, it, it seemed like a step above anything we had done before, where it was just divisive.
4: Yeah. Well, I think in some ways it's a model for the rest of the country. Yeah. And so I do discuss it in the book in that uh, in that uh, that context. What? Uh, but I, I I picked those uh, five issues because poverty is uh, it, I think perhaps the most worrisome and persistent uh, condition, and it, it affects so many of our other problems like crime and uh, the the breakup of uh, families and and so forth. And I discovered that uh, there's an awful lot to be learned about uh, poverty that is highly relevant to uh, the way we think about it and the way we might address, address it. So I spent a lot of effort to uh, define it, measure it, I distinguish it from inequality, which is a very different kind of problem. Although there's um, there's some overlap, it's really quite different uh, conceptually and uh, in terms of uh, the values that are relevant to it. Um, and then I discuss uh, what we know about poverty. Uh, so it's a it's a synthesis of uh, the vast social science about uh, about uh, poverty's causes and its effects and then i discuss the government programs that exist uh, uh that seek to alleviate poverty and then i talk about other uh other approaches uh that might be Uh, that might be considered
2: Uh, again again we're speaking with uh, emeritus professor of law at yale university professor peter shuck about his book uh, one nation undecided clear thinking about five hard issues that divide us professor teach us to just maybe take us a little bit on uh, an exploration of poverty in a way what like give us some clarity there what are the facts where where are we a little confused when it comes to an issue of poverty, like you were saying, that is so far-reaching and impacts so many of our issues.
1: Okay.
4: Well, uh, the first, as I said, the first thing I do in the chapter is distinguish from inequality. I- inequality is a comparative measure, uh, whereas poverty is an absolute measure in terms of, uh, of of defining it. We have a we have a poverty line, uh, whereas inequality is a question of how people uh, fare uh, relative to other people and that 's a very different kind of uh, of thing um, uh, so then the next thing is is defining poverty and measuring it and that 's the beginning of i think some real enlightenment because the official poverty measure is, is has been widely discredited it's been in existence for over fifty years now, and nobody in this Field believes that, that that it's accurate or even uh, illuminating, uh, not because it wasn't a good effort at the, in 1964 when it was developed, but just because we know so much more now. So we,
2: we so we're and, using a measure that that most of the experts believe today doesn't measure very well. Right.
4: Wow. Right. Yeah. Uh, all, all the experts. I don't think anybody uh, has a. Uh, endorses the official poverty measure. So then I go into what adjustments you need to to make in order to produce a more accurate reading of poverty, and um, and they're in some ways a little bit technical. Uh, so I won't go into into that here. They're perfectly understandable for the reader, but uh, maybe that's it's not so interesting what these adjustments <laughs> would be. But then there's an entirely different way of thinking about poverty, which is consumption. Uh, if you if you measure what people consumed in the past and what they consume today as a rough proxy for their well-being, uh, their material well-being, we're only talking about material well-being here, um, uh, then we see that poverty has declined quite dramatically uh, since the uh, war on poverty. Uh, it's just in terms of people's material possessions their access to uh, health care, um, and uh, many other uh, indicia of uh, of well-being. So, in a way, you could say the war on poverty has succeeded in in in, in that respect, uh, even though it seems to have failed in some uh, in some other respects. Um, and then I discuss, as I said, the causes of of poverty, uh, and uh, I think the most important one is is the breakdown of families. Uh, that's the single best predictor of poverty. Hmm. Um, uh, that is the absence of a, an intact family. Um, and uh, if you want to predict how a, a, a child is going to fare in, in life uh, economically, uh, uh, telling you whether he or she uh, has an intact family is is the key key predictor. Uh, that's very, very distressing because the trends there are so bad, uh, as as you may know. And it's bad not just among blacks, which spawned a the famous Moynihan report 50 years ago. Today, the fam- the family breakdown among whites is actually h- higher than it was for blacks in 1960, mm. uh in the 1960s, the, the Moynihan report. So it's a very, very... Very uh, tra- tragic uh, development.
2: Yeah, we're backsliding, aren't we? It's tough. Uh, it's it's a sad, sad state of affairs. Peter, let's take a break, come back and continue this discussion. One Nation Undecided, clear thinking about five hard issues that divide us more with Professor Peter Shuck. Next. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. And uh, today we're talking with Peter Shuck, who is an emeritus professor from the uh, uh, Yale University pro- uh, professor of law there and wrote the book One Nation Undecided, Clear Thinking About Five Hard Issues That Divide Us. And Peter, again, we're honored to have you. Thank you for your time.
4: Well, thank you. And if, if I could just give a shout out to uh, one of my favorite students who's a distinguished professor at BYU, yeah. Brett
2: Sharp. Oh great! We'll have to okay. track him down and uh, and uh, then interview him for you Peter. Thanks for this because when I look at it and i mean it's a it's an extensive book it's it's lo- it's got a lot of research very well cited and these are pretty complicated issues poverty immigration uh campaign finance reform these are these are complicated issues what What was your hope? um by by putting this book together wh- and and actually even helping us clarify clarity um wh- what was your hope behind the whole thing
4: well the hope is simply to uh help citizens uh who care about these issues uh to 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 think clearly about them i mean it's 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 part of the title uh in the hope that uh our society would become wiser uh and uh, our decisions as a people will be uh, more effective in trying to change the conditions that we're uh, attacking uh, such as poverty or inequality in the case of affirmative action or uh, uh, campaign, uh, uh, you know, wise, fair campaigning. Um, and so uh, it's really a simple objective, uh, but it takes a, a lot of work in order to bring together as I tried to do uh, uh the, what we know about these issues, Well we the sorts of information and values that we ought to uh,
1: uh,
4: take into account in in coming out where we do. And as I say in the introduction, I don't really care where people come out on these issues. Uh, I, I just uh, you know different people will come out of different places, but I want them to to do so only after giving it uh, a fairly rigorous thought
2: is do, do you sense that with kind of the the partisanship the polarization of the country where we seem to be you know split um maybe 50-50 and even our our media and the way we get our information is so partisan and polarized is how, how do we ever overcome that in order to create clarity if we're always drinking from you know, one well instead of a, instead of multiple so one, wells. One Kool Aid. Yeah, exactly one <laughs> one, of one Kool-Aid bottle of Kool Aid.
4: Well, it's very hard. I'm very optimistic about the country because I think more than any other society in history, we are uh, we are diverse and we have struggled with uh, a conflict in the past. Uh, uh, as I said at the outset, um, we are no more polarized today uh, uh, than we have been at periods of time in the past and in some ways we're better equipped to deal with uh, this conflict today because people are so much better educated uh, than they were before Uh, and because we have a history a long long history of of solidarity uh, coupled with uh, conflict and so um, uh, but you asked me how we're going to overcome it I don't know it's going to take wise leadership um, uh, which um, uh, I fear we have less of today that's a that's not a partisan statement i think it's a it's an objective statement
2: yeah well because centrist. it's it's cross-party right i mean we don't seem yeah. to have a lot of leadership in either party right now
4: yeah i mean i'm a centrist uh, in, uh politically an independent uh but i'm very dismayed at uh at what i see as i think uh the vast majority of our citizens are yeah um but i think we'll get to, i think we'll get through this uh, uh we have elections every two years and uh um you know they they are accountable for the politicians are accountable in some sense for uh the mess that they're making and um so there's there's hope there
2: do you do you see anywhere on any of the issues the five issues you address do you see an example or um, you know somewhere we could shine a light on where we see a really effective open minded balance maybe and solution orientation on facts and values where facts and values are coming together hmm. and actually and we're and we're we 're able to deal with issues even if it 's just in one area or one state or one you know department of government
4: yeah oh that 's a that 's a good and difficult uh, question I mentioned the Utah Compromise before uh, in a chapter on religious exemptions from uh, general policies uh, I think that 's an area where the the political uh, conflict that surrounded these issues, many of them having to do with uh, gay rights uh, um, uh, the, the politics i think uh, uh, is is sort of grinding toward uh, uh, sensible solutions as was the case um in utah and uh uh, it's particularly interesting area because the market which is so powerful in the united states uh, and one of the things that distinguishes us from other countries is is the importance of uh, market forces the market has played a very important role in uh trying to come up with solutions to the problems of uh, conflicts over gender uh equality and uh so that's uh, that's an important uh, feature of this. I would also say um, in an area like immigration that uh, uh, to which I devote a lot of pages um, is that I think ultimately we will come up with a uh, a reasonable uh, set of policy compromises in that area i don't i think uh, it's it's obvious that we need some sort of legalization program for to dealing with the eleven million uh, undocumented. Americans, we need, I think, to increase our legal immigration quotas. Uh, We need to um, increase border enforcement. uh, And uh, uh, there are ways we can do that. I mean, these are these are not we're not going to solve these problems, but we can certainly reduce them to manageable uh, levels. So those are those are two areas in which, although the situation seems pretty bleak today, um, uh, I think we're going to we're going to make some progress. And
2: again, in in the book, you bring out and
4: especially if I could just, would add, yeah, add one thing about immigration. One of the interesting things about immigration is that the political lineup is different in immigration. You have many conservatives who are who support immigration. Uh, you have many liberals who uh, want to restrict it. Uh, mostly involving uh, labor unions, um, although they too are split on the issue. So there's enough. There's enough. Uh, of, uh, a set of moving parts politically that I think uh, it bodes well for, in the long run, for a solution.
2: Hmm. Give us, as we, as we wrap up, one of the things I always like to know is, what's the one thing? Is there one thing that we should be focusing on, Peter, to make sure that we as consumers, we as citizens, um, are, are helping to you know, better solve some of these issues and have clearer thinking?
4: yeah I think it's an attitude it's a mental uh, it's a mental disposition uh that uh ought to be uh less ought to be more humble about our views and, and more curious as to uh their complexity um, and uh, i think we need that because we're locked into positions that are often not very well thought through and uh there are trends in our society that are increasing that such as the greater geographical sorting out of people uh by liberal and conservative dispositions so you have you know communities uh which are uh overwhelmingly liberal or overwhelmingly conservative and just so people don't uh have much reason to question their uh their views so it requires a really concerted effort uh but i think as i said before that in american history that the, the extraordinary diversity of our and dynamism of our society uh augurs well for ultimately uh, reducing these uh, conflicts um though we'll never solve them yeah. and uh we need to be we need to be uh looking for opportunities to uh to reach accommodation uh Among uh, more issues.
2: Yeah, totally agree, Peter. Thank you for your insight. Peter H. Shuck, again, is the Simeon E. Baldwin Professor of Law Emeritus at Yale University and also uh, author of the book One Nation Undecided Clear Thinking About Five Hard Issues That Divide Us. Boy learning that's the goal here right that's the goal on the show up next we'll be talking uh, doing a little coach's corner about how we can uh, work through difficult issues in our own lives
0: i'm ready to go in coach
1: just give me a chance
3: because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's
2: dr matt and his coaching corner label welcome back you know it's it's hard. How do you create clear thinking with your neighbors, your friends, when you and your neighbor are negotiating a new fence? How are you going to talk that one through? How do you really negotiate anything? In the end, I think a lot of us, uh, we, we may kind of go quiet. Some of us tend to get maybe more aggressive than we need to be. Kind of it's going to be our way or the highway idea. Or others just shut up. They're quiet. So let me give you a few rules, a few tools to help you as you enter into a negotiation. One of the rules I tend to teach a lot when I'm working with couples and uh, businesses is this idea of focus on your principles, not your positions. A lot of us actually start... A negotiation knowing our position. Well, I either I want a fence or I don't or I want a white fence. If, if we're going to have to pay for a fence, I want a white fence. It's got to be the fence has got to be white. And the minute you're, you know, you're already arguing the color of the fence, you may be in trouble positions versus principles. Think about the health care position, repeal and replace. We must repeal and replace Obamacare. And once you're stuck in the position of having to do something, you uh, you've lost the power of the principles behind it. There's reasons why you should, I guess, either want to keep Obamacare or repeal and replace Obamacare. But what are the principles behind it? Because once we identify the principles, well, we want, you know, we want fair coverage for everyone. We want it to be affordable as a principle. We want it to, to uh, be efficient as a system. And it, wouldn't it make more sense that we try to fix health care instead of positions of Obamacare or not Obamacare? Wouldn't it make more sense that we try to fix it by figuring out how we create a fair, cost-effective, efficient system that would work for us? So instead, before you actually start moving the pieces, which we see happening all through Washington and all through um, our governments and even in most of our negotiations, don't move the pieces till you've got clarity on the principles. What is it you're seeking? When you talk about putting a fence in, what is it you're looking for? Well, I want privacy. I want security. Okay, great. Privacy and security, by the way, notice privacy and security have very little to do with the color of the fence. Um, do you want affordability? Does that matter to you? So get the principles down, the positions down. Then another little rule I teach is listen, 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 right? You got to listen to what they're saying and make sure that, that there's agreement as you go. Cl- clarify, are, are we on the same page? Do you feel that way? If you notice the other partner that's uh, in the negotiation with you isn't saying much, then I wouldn't assume that their their silence means agreement. So keep testing it. Are you with me on that? Are you with me on that? Also try to figure out ways to make sure that uh that you're that you can find a win-win. One of my rules is um if I really don't care about the color of the fence, if I haven't thought about the color mattering to me, then I might and but it really matters to the other party, then defer. Let them have that win straight up. If that's if it doesn't matter to you, let the other person have that win. Because if there's just power there when they see that I'm willing to totally, you know, defer to them on something. Also, before you actually shore up and make a move, um, make sure that you've you've expressed the, and shown clarity of the other person's position. Don't even just think because you heard it, you understand it. I'm a big believer that you ought to maybe paraphrase it back to, you know, reinforce that you're getting it negotiation folks it's human relations 101 it's not going away i tell you it's not going to it's not going to disappear ever we will be negotiating the rest of our lives ah so much to learn right on this crazy uh, world and this crazy life we're trying to put together well next up next hour we're going to be talking about parenting mistakes what today's parents need to stop doing and uh, what we could do better to raise uh, healthier children take a break we'll be back stick with us